It was a woman that had been covered in her own for seven days. Seven days? <laughs> that was very unpleasant. <laughs> oh my God, can you describe that smell? No. <laughs> <laughs> There would be sexual assaults. Women on women? Very much so. Very common. They were urinating on the younger girls. We had a number of sort of really bad bullies. One weekend we had 90 incidents of self-harm or suicide. 90? 90. 90? 90. They would put porn on in the staff room and it was all men and they'd put porn on. And Even knowing you were done? Yeah. One officer got caught with a load of, like, really serious, like, S&M pornography and bestiality stuff what? in his locker at work. But it was thinking? S&M as, uh, you know, sadomasochism. What, horses with gimp hoods on? I, I, didn't, I didn't get to... I, I wasn't prepared to, to view what that. Hell? There was quite a lot of women in there, Munchausen by proxy, that had killed their kids... There is a cruelty that women have that I think is very, it, it, it's quite unique. It's quite, you know, it's quite disturbing. As a mother now, it just goes against, goes against nature. They had, I think they had about five children and they had seriously sexually abused them, raped them. The wrong kids. Yeah, tied them up, videoed them. No. Yep, yep. She used to have an open wound in her stomach and it was a constant open festering wound. It was a hole that she maintained. So it was in her stomach and she used to insert things into it. So she used to insert, say, cutlery into it or um, drawing pins or, you know, anything that she could get hold of and she'd shove it into this wound. Welcome to Holly, prison governor. This is our very first prison governor. We did have on several prison guards. You may have seen Samworth, Scott does sport, Lee Davies, who ended up bloody in prison himself and smuggling drugs in. They're all on the True Crime Podcast playlist if you want to check them out. But you've not seen Holly unless you've been visiting Neil Samworth's channel. Please support Neil Check out his channel. Hope he's doing well. Would love to get him back on for a third part. He's always very popular. But that is how I discovered Holly was through Neil's channel. Yeah. We've been trying to get you on for a while, haven't yep. we? But the schedules haven't been right. So huge thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Did you, as a kid, think, when I grow up, I want to be a prison governor? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I... um <clears throat> I used to want to be a marine biologist, weirdly. Marine biologist. Yeah, I was a bit like obsessed with sharks and things. Yeah. But it's sort of, uh, the, the changing point was the film Silence of the Lambs. That was it. That's all I wanted to do. I tell, wanted to tell, do. <laughs> tell me, mom, yeah. and your little girls on the slab. Yeah, oh, obsessed with the film. I've watched it hundreds of times and I watched that and I was really interested in psychology, but I... Really sad and embarrassing, but I, I wanted to be in the FBI. I looked at going to university in America and stuff like that. And then I sort of lowered my expectations <laughs> slightly, um, did a degree in psychology and then thought I need a job because um, I was going to go into psychology. But then, you know, people at Rampton 
we're getting, you know, psychologists at Rampton and Nashworth are being, ten, being paid £10,000. Oh, no. I was like, no, prison officer, <laughs> <laughs> loads more money. Um, so, yeah, it just sort of started. I went in as a prison officer, kind of thinking maybe I can move into the psychology side, um, but really enjoyed it. So how old were you when you applied? I was 21. And how easy was it to get in? And you have to do like a training and all that stuff? Yeah, so I did all my assessments. I mean, to be fair, it was pretty easy to get back, <laughs> to get in those days. Uh, you didn't have to do fitness tests. You didn't have to do, you know, anything like that. I don't even think I had to do a written test. Um, you know, I think it was all sort of role play and 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 that was it really. Your suitability to sort of manage people and incidents. So it was dead, dead easy to get in. And then I did, I went away and did, um, I think it was about two and a half, three months of training, 12 weeks of training. And then boom, you were thrown in. I mean, I was fresh out of university. I mean, I had some life experience in terms of, I used to go raving, you know, I was, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I wasn't an angel, but nothing prepares you at 21 years old and, they, did, did they send you to a lightweight prison at first? So um, they sent me to style first. That was my, what they call your home style. prison. So well, where is style? Are you going to say so, it's yeah, in style? It, it, it where is style? style? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, near Wilmslow in Cheshire. Okay, which is quite a posh area, isn't it? Very Wilmslow. posh area. Yeah. yeah, style particularly. Quite a lot of celebrities and stuff live there. Um, but it's sort of set back from the main road. So people know it's there, but it's not an imposing sort of jail, would you say? Um, so I joined style. Um, I think I was there for about two months and they went, we've got a real, uh, staff shortage in London. Who wants to go? Well, I was seeing a guy who lived down South at the time and I was like, yeah, I'll go. And also they used to hand you wads of cash over. <laughs> so you used to get all your expenses, all your food, or you used to stay in a hotel, work lots of hours, then have lots of time off, get paid lots of money. So I was like, yeah, I'll go down to London. Oh my God, they sent me to Wormwood Scrubs. Okay, hold on <laughs> a second then, because we've jumped ahead two months. Yeah, okay, yeah. First day in style, how was that? Oh, it was bizarre, because I don't know if you know anything about style and the layout of the prison. But I, didn't it used... even, I didn't even know it existed. Really? You told me about it. Well, I didn't know it, ex it existed until they actually said that was where I was going. So it's an old children's home and it's very sort of unique in, in its layout and its setup. So it has a number of what you call house units and they are literally like sort of dormitories. Um, so it's a house unit. You're like a house mother with a load of dormitories. So you're one person on your own responsible for, say, a maximum of 30 women. So they put me on one of the houses and the way we were trained was more to do with male prisons and male, uh, you know, offenders. So I walked onto this unit, had no idea what I was doing. And I was in a, um, it was a long-term prisoners unit, my very first day. It was a late shift. I went in at one, knew I had to get through to nine and I was shitting myself just because I was scared of women. I, I've I've seen women fight. I've seen you know women, and the, but they're all long termers, so they could cook their own meals. 
So they're walking around with knives. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell have I let myself in for? Because there were some that were the lifers, you know, some that were quite dangerous, some that had mental health issues, but were deemed like a bit more settled. And because I was just filling in on that shift, there was no actual work for me to do. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll assert my authority. <laughs> so I'm wandering around the house and I'm checking things and going in people's rooms. And they're like, the, the girls were like, what are you doing? Fuck off, sit in the office, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I was quite happy to do that. Um, so that was my very first day. And it, but it was just, I remember feeling like a fish out of water, just completely terrified. Um, you know, not what I expected at all. The ro- wandering around, the wandering around, roaming free. You couldn't see any other staff. You know, it was, um, yeah, so baptism by fire. This is the opposite of America because the higher up you go in security in America, the least sunlight you see, the least you get out of your cell, the least privilege you have. Cooking, that's never going to happen yeah, yeah, any, ever, in any ever. security level in America. Well, I mean, I, I did every single security level out there, so I know what it was like. Yeah. Supermax, lifers. Maybe you it's get like out for a no shower con- every so yeah, many days. Yeah, no contact. The SWAT team will come and take you to the shower. Yeah, yeah. But in this country, Cate, they've got they're, they're cooking. They've got knives. They've got cooking accessories. Yeah, they can weaponize. Yeah. So, all right. So, was there any like high profile uh, females in the like you know Rose West level kind of people? Um, the sort of one significant w- was Tracy Andrews, the road rage killer. Oh, I've not heard of her. What did she do? Oh, she it was very famous uh, back in the, oh, I'd say in the 90s. Mm. And she um, she murdered her partner driving down a lane. They had got into an argument. She stabbed him numerous times with like a little knife, stabbed him numerous times, and then rang the police or went and got help and alleged that it had been a road rage incident. Now, there'd just been another high profile, I think Kenneth Noy, There'd just been another high-profile um, road raid incident. So it was kind of like, oh, this is... So she 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 killed him, but she went on TV. I don't know if you, you've seen it. She no. went on TV and she was giving um, a press conference, you know, absolutely distraught. You know, she looked like hell. I think she had a black eye. She was, you know... Um, but they did it. We know now that they set the... Uh, press conference up because they had their suspicions about her because they had a particularly volatile relationship anyway it was very you know it was world famous she went to court every day glamorous you know really sort of done up to the nines and they actually the the sort of nail in the coffin of the evidence was they found an imprint in her boot of a bloody imprint of the knife that she used so she'd obviously stabbed him then she placed the knife into her boot. And obviously she was covered in blood anyway. Um, she also, <gasps> I know, yeah, it was really, I, I can't believe you've not heard of it. It was a really sort of, it's the song, um, um, oh, what's the, the Welsh band, the singer Keris, they did a song called Road Catatonia. Okay. They did a song called Road Rage and that was about her. Right. Um, so she was like big all over the news, really massive. Um 
And there were all sorts of... Because the, the female estate, the prison estate, is very small. You tend to know... Because when you're transferring prisoners, you tend to know the staff. You know you know the problematic prisoners that are going to end up coming your way. Um, and there'd been all these rumours. I, I think she'd been at Ballwood Hall that she was trying to get pregnant by a male officer so she could have a baby in prison and move to sort of a lower security, move to a, a sort of a place with a mother and baby in it, not that they would allow lifers on there necessarily anyway. So, yeah, so she ended up with us. And we were all, again, I'm like 21, 21, 22, terrified, thinking she's going to be this raging nutcase. And I remember just opening the door and just seeing nothing behind the eyes, like dead eyes. And that was really spooky. It really sort of like, I opened the door and she came out and she didn't interact with people. She was really sort of standoffish, very stoic. Um, but you knew all this. We Because it had been so heavily in the press, we knew all this backstory. So we were like fascinated, but she wouldn't engage with us. She wouldn't speak to staff. She, You know, she didn't really speak to other prisoners because she'd been placed on a remand wing, essentially. So on remand is when you're waiting to go to court. Um, so a life sentence prisoner doesn't really want to be mixing with people that are in and out. Um, but, yeah, so that was the thing she was trying to. Now, whether she actually did have an affair with a works officer, I can't actually remember, but there were a lot of concerns about her behaviour with male staff. I've got a question on this Go on. then. I, I, you know, I'm familiar that prisoners play the system at every possible opportunity. Yes. And I've never heard of this playing of the system before. So how prevalent is it that a female prisoner would try and get pregnant to get to move to a better conditions? Is that is that common? No, that's the fir- you know, that's the only case I've heard of. But if you said how common is it for them to have relationships with staff, I mean as in intimate relationships, I would say that's that's not I wouldn't say it's common but it's it's very much not unusual and that's with female staff and male staff so in America then where I was housed sex with a staff member and a prisoner because we're classified as like wards of the state yes so it is considered a sexual assault even if it's consensual same here yeah 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 so um you can be um I think it's it's something because you're in a public office and like say when you become a prisoner in the in in the united kingdom you are classed as a vulnerable person because you've effectively had your rights taken away as you say a ward of the state um so yeah it's classed as um as as and it's corruption at the end of the day so there are you know tends to be more women women staff that get sentenced for relationships with with men it's quite unusual unusual for males to be sort of out there in the in the public public forum because from what i saw if they get caught or if there's rumors swirling they'll move them they'll move one to one prison another prison yeah they'll move the other person to another prison yeah because it's really when and there were always rumors at style always um and you have to take it with a pinch of salt because as you said some you know there's some very manipulative very devious, cunning people out there. Um, but in the prison uh, prison system, we we submit what's called security information reports. And, you know, you might get a member of staff who has loads of rumours about them. So all this information submitted saying he's having an affair with X, Y, and Z, 
but it's it's because he won't bring the drugs in because <laughs> it's just words you know it's just rumors so yeah. it's you know it, it you know it's very difficult mm. to catch people at it so to speak but it generally comes along with some other form of bringing in contraband or or stuff like that but we had some really like one officer got caught with a load of like really serious like S&M pornography and bestiality stuff what? in his locker at work bringing that in for somebody or bringing it in for himself but we we suspected that he whether he resigned because that's what happens you get given the opportunity to resign so a lot of people resign um before they're investigated and then there isn't enough information to go to the police so yeah he was found with really serious you know how did he get caught because there was rumors rumors so that was enough the rumors were enough for security to say we're going to search your locker because staff searching at style so at manchester prison for example you know category a your body searched you go through a scanner you're you know it's 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 tighter security than the airport style you just walk straight in very very rare that they have a drugs dog there very rare that you're searched so it's very easy to bring stuff into style prison but like I said, he was, and we suspected him of, of, of being a wronger, so to speak. But to have that kind of material in work. Oh, my God. Yeah. Was he like, did he have a family as well as being into animals? <laughs> I don't know. I think, it, he might, I think he was a single guy, to be honest with you. But yeah, we were just shocked. We were like, one, what the hell are you doing bringing porn into work? Even though... I have been present where it's been played, which is slightly uncomfortable. Uh, but bestiality, we were like, what? But it was thinking? S&M as, uh, you know, sadomasochism. What? Horses with gimp hoods on. I, I, didn't, I didn't get to, I, I wasn't prepared to, to view Bloody that. Hell. Oh my goodness. Well, you are an absolutely fascinating storyteller. <laughs> this has got off to a uh, dynamic start. Yeah, yeah S&M, bestiality. Really, you are really good at telling stories. So, all right, so you're at Style for your first two months. Yeah. What other dramas happened there? Um, I th- I had my first fight. <laughs> How did that set the table? How did that come about? Um, I think it was just separating. It wasn't a big fight. <laughs> I think it was literally just separating a couple of women and staff came to sort of help me. So just to give you a bit of background, we all worked on the houses. Um, we were a brand new big bunch of staff that were recruited all to work on the houses and there was a remand wing being built and we were recruited to work on the remand wing but until that was fully built we were placed on the houses and to be fair the violence on the houses at the time was very low-key you know it wasn't really in your face it wasn't like massive dust-ups like you get in a male prison uh, so my first fight was literally just getting in between two people and going, where, where are my colleagues? Where are my colleagues? But yeah. It's, Did they back off when you got yeah, in between Yeah, them? yeah, yeah. They didn't swing at you? No, that came later on. <laughs> that came later on. But also the sort of availability, you know, there's a really strong correlation between sort of violence and drug use in prison. There was drug use, but it wasn't to the extent that it, it, it was later on when the wing opened because people were coming in and out of court quite often with drugs inside them. So that's when sort of things started to ramp up. 
Have you got a book out with all this? No, it has been suggested. Oh, you sure? Yeah, sure? it has been suggested. There's, not, there's loads of prisoner books out there, but there's not many governor ones. Yeah. And you've got these fantastic stories. Oh, I've got eight. Yeah. It's, it, and, and people ask, were, were prisoners the problem? And I'm like, no, it tends to be staff, you know, and that's some of the, you know. There's a lot, it's complex, isn't it? There's it a lot is very on. complex. And it's kind of like, I mean, there's there's more stories about how some guy got sacked for sexually harassing I call, I used to Is call this it style no this was later on I used to call him the Jimmy Savile of uh, the prison service um but there were a lot of us that were victim of him um and this is sort of like I've talked previously about moral authority that's what we have to have you know if you're going around sexually assaulting people you know it's frightening yeah. at least with prisoners they are what they are particularly women you you see that it's heart on the sleeve, the behaviours out there, you know, when they're sad, you know, when they're happy, you know, they're really sort of, you know, in your face. So they're pretty easy to read. Whereas staff, you assume, are sort of well-behaved and very moral and, you know, towing the line. They're hiding all kinds. When actually they're hiding bestiality <laughs> magazines in their locker. Yeah. <laughs> was was the two months of style the only time you, you were working with women? Or, no, no, no. Okay, okay. All right, so um, so you had your first separated a fight at style. Yeah, yeah. What was like an average day like in the women's prison at style? It depended because the units were all so unique. I mean, like I said, the sort of working on the remand wing came a little bit later in my career, about 12 months later in my career. So the, the units were all very unique so for example we had a sex offender unit and a female sex offender female sex offender and vulnerable prisoner unit so there was quite a lot of women in there munchausen by proxy that had killed their kids or you know really hurt the kids oh there was um, is that is that something to do with uh, postnatal depression or i don't know i think munchausen by proxy is, is a separate sort of psychiatric what, what condition mean? So, sorry. So Munchausen's by proxy is when you intentionally harm your child or someone in your care. uh, So therefore that you get to hospital and get the attention. So the Gypsy Rose Blanchard, um, where her her disabled daughter ended up stabbing her. Oh, that one. That's Munchausen by proxy. So the daughter had Munchausen in that case. No, the the mum. The mum has munch, and by proxy, it means you're doing it to someone else. Munchausen uh, syndrome is where you feign illnesses uh, in order to receive medical care or attention. That was bizarre, wasn't it, that case? Yeah, really. But then when you, yeah. there was a really interesting documentary and when you got underneath the layers of how she'd been manipulated. So there were women like that on there. Um, there was another woman that was in during 15 years and I said they they were like the Fred and Rose West, but without the murder. What had they done? They had, I think they had about five children and they had seriously sexually abused them, raped them. Their own kids? T- yeah, tied them up, videoed them. No. Yep, yep. It was, it was... For what purpose? What, what motive? Well, they, there's, there's sort of been a shift in thinking these days so it used to be that that they said oh the woman's completely coerced under the power of her husband he's the deviant he's made her do all this but there's a lot more evidence sort of coming out sort of psychological research to suggest that these women 
because because it's so alien to people to think that a woman can have sexual thoughts towards a children to, towards any child, let alone her own children. But she very very much passed it off. It was all her husband. She was it was all him. But she was still corresponding with him. So if she was that, you know, she was doing 15 years, I think. And she had an opportunity to break off this relationship with this guy, this man that she'd been married to, this monster. But she chose not to. That boggles my mind. I mean, we interviewed a woman, uh, Kareen Hutzibout. She's like an FBI trained uh, profiler of predators in particular, That's child killers. and stuff my like ideal that. job. <laughs> oh, you love out the videos we did. It's very harrowing now. But she said the females that she came across were worse than the men in terms of doing things to kids. Yeah. Which I found horrifying. And then um, we had a woman on called Maya, pure evil dad. Her dad basically bred her to do these things yes, to her. Yes, yeah. I, I, I came across prisoners who were victim of that, yeah. And when it all came out, I mean, this guy kept a diary of what he'd done to her as a kid, the, the, the date rape drugs he'd used, oh. and he rated each... Yeah, well, wow. when, when it all came out, she thought a mother was going to say, oh, I'm so sorry, this is so shocking, I can't believe he did this. The mother said to her, I'm pissed off because he loved you more than he loved me. And the mother, when he got out of prison, he went right back to the mum and they're still together. That just, as awful as it sounds and as, as sort of like grotesque to a inverted commas normal person... That is, and I think as well for, for mothers, it's very difficult to admit because it goes to your core if you've been unable to protect your child. So it's actually easier to believe that it didn't happen. But yeah, again, I worked with with females that had been, you know, pimped into paedophile rings by the dads, were forced to perform sex acts with the brother, sex acts with animals. And you think... And, you know, these women are problematic. Their behaviour is, like, off the scale. And, I mean, this woman in particular, unfortunately, she ended up killing herself in custody. She used to have an open wound in her stomach, and it was a constant open festering wound. She she was covered in self-harm scars all over her arms, all over her body. Um, she was, uh, you know, very, very overweight, so she had this but it was a hole that she maintained. So it was in her stomach and she used to insert things into it. So she used to insert, say, cutlery into it or um, drawing pins or, you know, anything that she could get hold of and she'd shove it into this wound. Now, she was a victim of this. She was like... Or as a kid, she'd been putting those things. As a kid, yeah. I think her and her brother were abused from the age of about four onwards. Um, and I found it harrowing. She was it, destroyed, broken. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, she was, her behaviour was not just self-injurious, but yeah, she, uh, we had a bit of a tussle at points. Mm-hmm. She used to go to hospital quite regularly and they used to put her on the maternity ward because they didn't know where else to put her. They didn't know what to do with her. And they thought that the maternity ward might be a bit more settled. But, um, and so they used to put her on the maternity ward. And it used to be times when you call it going out on escort. You go and sit on escort. And the prisoners have nothing. They have nothing out there. So occasionally you might buy them a bag of crisps or a can of Coke or something. Um, but she was after cigarettes. And 
all that we'd said to the ward staff, it's no smoke. You can't have women smoking outside. It's a no smoking ward. But they and I said, do not make an exception for her. But they did because they were so terrified of her because she was so aggressive. So uh, yeah, we had a little um, tussle. They they have these things called escort chains. So when they're not in handcuffs, it's like a one a single handcuff and then a long chain. Um, so you sit at the side of the bed, chained to them, which is like really awkward. And she'd been bad. And I think I had given it. It's when I smoked. I think I had given her a couple of cigarettes because I just felt a little bit sorry. And, you know, I knew her story. She was, a, but she was an asshole. Unfortunately, she was behaving like an asshole. And uh, I remember being sat with a male member of staff. Bless him. I'm not going to say his name. Um, but he sat, he was quite new, sat there with the newspaper like that the whole time, terrified while I'm saying, while I'm arguing the toss and saying, no, you can't do that. And in the end, it started a, a tug of war with the, with the chain <laughs> over the bed. And she's like three times the size of me. And we're like, they're wrestling. She's trying to pull me in so she can get my cigarettes. And I'm like, and I'm like, are you going to help me? Are you going to help me? And he's like, oh, pretended he didn't know what was going on. But yeah, and and she ended up she ended up taking her own life. And then you think, you know, oh, it's sad, difficult because it? you've got to separate the behaviour from the person. And you know, I defy anyone to sort of experience that and not be an asshole or not be difficult or not think, you know, the world is is, is against you. But yeah, that's just one example, and it, it's horrendous because, like, like I say, going back to the sort of the, the female sex offenders, they're just. It just goes as a mother now. It just goes against goes against nature, but I think when they've already crossed that line. So Vanessa George, for example, was a, the uh, Portsmouth paedophile who'd worked in the nursery, and her her boyfriend and a third woman were. Uh, she was the one abusing the children in the nursery and circulating the photos um, within this WhatsApp sex, you know, paedophile sex group, and. Um, yeah, it, I think once women have crossed that line, there is a cruelty that women have that I think is very, it, it, it's quite unique. It's quite, you know, it's quite disturbing. I mean, obviously we have male psychopaths and, you know, serial killers and, and the like, but there is something in my mind that is is just distinctly wrong when a woman crosses that boundary. And I found them very difficult to work with. Not because they're offences, because of the way they presented, which was all very quiet, compliant. I've done nothing wrong. I'm a victim. I'm going to take no responsibility for my behaviour. Poor me. You know, I'm, I'm ill. I, I feel depressed. And I struggled. And I always like to work from a place of empathy. And I really struggled, really struggled with empathy for them. Oh my God, you blow my mind even more. I'm so much <laughs> prophecy. I just, it, the minute you went to the level of a, a wound that was being maintained, my brain just did something. When it went oh, out. I've seen x-rays of women that have inserted, like we have plastic cutlery in, yeah. in jails, uh, x-rays up on the wall of like knives and forks in their arms, like actually under the skin in their arms or uh, swallowing batteries. That was a really popular thing to do, swallow batteries or swallow razor blades. And you're like, babe, it's got to, it's got to come out some ways. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Just as an aside, then, because we've interviewed so many people on this channel, 
And when I was incarcerated for drugs in America, I lived with people that were like um, injecting heroin all day. Yeah. Most of them were injecting heroin all day for six years. And before that, I thought heroin users, you know, lock them up, throw away the key. Yeah. But hearing nearly all of them were, I'm trying to phrase this carefully for YouTube, nearly all of them were victims of people who were attracted to children when they were children. Right. And the abuse they'd suffered then had traumatized them so much. They never had any tools to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So heroin is such a strong drug, it put them out of it. Yeah. Then they get addicted. And if it's a man, robberies car theft, drug, drug yeah. dealing. If it's a woman, yeah. sex work, yeah. shoplifting, yeah. pocketing, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and from interviewing so many people, I see this over and over and over again. So it seems to me that a primary root cause of crime is childhood trauma and in particular abuse. Yeah. Abuse of the nature you just described. I, I 100% would agree with that. And whether it doesn't have to, it can be any form of abuse. And whether it, I mean, obviously it's particularly high in within the female estate, but it's also very high in the male estate as well. Uh, it could it could be physical abuse, you know, getting a crack from your parents too much or whatever. But they, they say that trauma is the gateway to addiction. And I completely and and you've got to look at the sort of socio-economic sort of background that these people are coming from you know potentially third generation prisoners you know drug dealer dad maybe a sex worker mom you know mom might be addicted to drugs so you're literally perpetuating the cycle and I've always said this you know prison particularly the short sentences for women they would come in, get we get them clean, put a bit of weight on them, then put them straight back on the streets. But I have got, I've just got to tell you this one thing. So we talk about women coming into to prison and for a short term, so we can get them sorted, but we don't do anything long term with them. So there was a woman. <laughs> this is one of my favourites. This I'll never forget it. Um, there was a woman, and she was a lovable rogue. She was really was a lovable rogue, and she was a heroin addict, and she was a working girl. And um, she had false teeth and she used to be able to charge more for um, blowjobs because she could take her teeth out. So she left her teeth in a punter's car down at the docks in Liverpool and <laughs> got arrested so that she could because the teeth were already moulded and, and done at style. So she knew she'd just come straight back in and because obviously it's an it's an immediate healthcare issue. So she and she's walking around saying, Yeah, I managed to charge him a fiver, but I lost my teeth, you know. And these girls are charging like three quid for very basic sort of and I'm like, whoa, you know, but she managed a fiver because she didn't have teeth. So but we got her sorted. We got her a new set of teeth and <laughs> Sent her back to the docks. So my next question is then, when I watch documentaries like Sins of Our Father, have you seen that one? No, um, it's a priest and he's got hundreds of victims, kids. Ah, oh, right, yeah. And they say, he's, yeah, he's going to get punished to the parents. This will never happen again. They just move him 20 miles away and he does it again. Yeah. And then when he finally gets nailed, they bring in a high-priced lawyer from the church pays for and he gets yeah. a slap on the wrist. For someone like that to create hundreds of victims of those heinous crimes mm. then just get a slap on the wrist. And, and we see this quite often with people that have got money. Do you think that there's a, the justice system is a bit upside down in the way that these predators have hundreds of victims and, and get short sentences, but if they had long sentences, 
perhaps that would protect society more mm. versus the people who are victims of them. Mm. They get on the drugs and they get these long and they're sentences. they're the ones that are persecuted. They're the ones paying yeah, the price, it yeah. seems to me. It's, oh, so I, I've worked with sex offenders all my career and I, I have, my thought is that if you are that way inclined, you are that way inclined and nothing is going to stop it. And if you've got one victim, you've got two victims, you've got three. The, you know, these people are habitual offenders. Um, I'm a victim myself and I've never reported it because I thought it's, it's my word against his from a long, 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 long time ago. Um, but he's still working with young girls. Oh so I've God. tried to report it. And got nowhere, gone through charities, gone through police. And it's it's hard because that, along with, you know, a few other bits and bobs, has stained my whole life. And yes, I've had a career, but I've used drugs. I've used alcohol. I started using drugs at a very young age. Uh, alcohol, addiction to painkillers. And like you say, you're just perpetuating. I'm fortunate that I had a job and had something to focus on. Um, I remember having a conversation with a guy a Liverpool prison who was um, doing a long, long time for sentences, a, a long sentence for against young boys. We're talking 11 and under. And he said to me, and I'm getting a bit like, not upset, but it's just, it chokes you up. And he said, I'm going to assume, miss, that you're attracted to men. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, imagine me saying to you, for the rest of your life now, you must never speak to a man see a man, fantasize about a man, do, you know, and he knew, he, he knew he was deviant. He knew that, that that was, and we used to have what, you know, something called um, SOTP, which was the Sex Offender Treatment Programme. All that did was try and give offenders the tools to avoid situations, triggering situations, you will never get to the root. It's like psychop it's like psychopathy or a personality disorder. It's ingrained in your in your being. And when I hear some of the sentences, and it makes me sick when I hear some of the sentences, because in in my opinion, some of the higher level assaults, I don't know what could be said and what can't, some of the higher level assaults will ruin a person's life. Like you said, lead to drugs, and they might get four years. Five years. That that woman I mentioned, and if you want, if anyone's watching and they want to watch the podcast, it's called Pure Evil Dad, the one who kept the diary and everything and rated it. He so they had all that evidence in court, right? The diary and everything. The cop when he found the diary and opened the box and started reading it, threw up right away. So they had all that evidence in court. The judge said, "You're the most evil man to ever step in our, my courtroom," but I can only give you so many years. And and prior to that. The perpetrator had written a letter to the judge mocking the whole system and, and, and bragging and, and saying he was gonna he was gonna have to be released within such a after his back time and everything else, he was out within a couple of years. It may it it literally makes me sick to my stomach. And what you've got to remember as well with the historical offences, the people that are convicted now of historical offences have to be convicted based on the law at the time that they com, um, committed the offence. Um, so it's it's like Stephen Lawrence's killers. They could they were um, sentenced under a different criminal justice act, and they had to be sentenced as 
if they were 16 year olds, even though they're in their 30s. So they got reduced sentences because of their age at the time of the offence. And it's the same now with with historical uh, sex offences that it just it's it's just another day in the life for them. And the the results are catastrophic. Um, and I saw it probably every single day of my working life. What do you think about chemical castration for the I'm males? Massively for it. Massively for it. Do you it. say why then? Because I'm, I'm for it as well, but I'm not. You probably have more knowledge mm. about on it than me. Um, I mean, I, I, I fully believe that there is a whether it, it be a chemical or hormonal or some sort of a neurological um, issue in the brain. And some of these guys or women that you speak to don't want to commit the offences. They know. So, for example, there are a lot of people out there that haven't actually that know they're like that, but haven't committed an offence and they manage it themselves. Um, but you've got it. That's it. It's in there. So, in terms of the chemical ca- uh, castration, from the reports that I've read, um, that the the men that have gone through it find it massively beneficial. It really helps them control the thoughts. It really helps with the, the sort of sexual urges. And also, it, you know, it's... I don't believe in full castration. I think that's a, a bit archaic, but... Because testosterone's a big factor in it, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is, yeah. And I've, you know, I, I met trans prisoners who'd cut them off. Mm. And they told me that the sex drive was completely different afterwards. Yeah. And I think that that's the, the main thing. And, and like I say... There are some, I mean, I don't want to label them all as sort of psycho psychopaths, but uh, there are a lot that, you know, don't want to go out and commit because they don't want to be in prison. You know, there might, it's not maybe nothing to do with the, the victim, but they just don't want to be in prison. And I just think, but then you go into the argument of, do you do enforced chemical castration? But I know in America they did enforce the bottomies at one point, so I don't know whether that's. Uh... Well, wasn't didn't Louis Thoreau go to he a did, yeah. high security level predator prison? Yes, he did. Yeah, and some of them were doing the castration, yeah, weren't they? Because yeah. it, it was going to enable them to get out a bit earlier. Yes, it was, and and again they feel that they benefited from it. Um, I remember watching it; it was quite a while ago now, wasn't it? It's but, fascinating. Um, and it was. I mean. <sighs> There is another argument, so I'll put this to you. There is, um, there's a, um, a leading female researcher who looks at how society treats these people. So, you, you know, once you are labelled, convicted of that offence, you become completely ostracised from your family, from friends, from society in general. You can look on the internet, you know, your local community knows, etc., etc., which is... And she's very much arguing for let's what what they have done is heinous. However, if we push them out into the extremities of society where we can't watch them, where we can't monitor them, where we can't support them, uh, give them, you know, some friendship. I mean, there are some that are going to argue that they don't deserve any of that. However, you know, that she argues strongly for including these people into and almost like a sort of big brothery type thing, sort of like you're in our community, you know, we're watching you. However, we're not going to ostracize you. There's a really strong link between um, sex offenders and people that are radicalized in prison. Um, So because ostracized, no one speaks to them, no friends, 
come with us, brother. You know, we'll look after you. Your, all your sins will be forgiven. We, you know, be part of our group. Because everyone, we're, we're tribesmen. Everyone wants to belong to a tribe, don't they? In Florida, for example, they have um, whole house, you know, housing estates, don't they? Of offenders? Yeah, because Louis visited them. Yeah, as well, yeah, he did. Yeah, and yeah. you think, and you think, but yeah, you're creating a tribe, but you're creating people that are just going to feed each other's. Whatever. Well, I had um, Doctor Sarah Good on. Mm. And the video was called Inside the Minds of the P Word. And she actually was on a documentary. She went, she, she took on a P who had the thoughts but didn't act on it. Mm, yeah. And this P said on this documentary, if society is going to maintain the lynch mob attitude, you're never going to understand us. And I'm coming on this documentary and showing my face, and you, you know, you, you're all going to hate me. You know, people are going to know, but I, but I'm doing it for a reason. Yeah. And the reason he said he was doing it was to tell people that you've got they, they've got to be analyzed. It's got to be psychoanalyzed. They've got to understand where they are coming from to solve the problem. Because if you just keep wanting to lynch them, it, it's it's not going to solve anything. So he was trying to explain where they were coming from in the hope that society could analyze that and formulate its its justice policy appropriately. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because um, years ago, they used to think that psychopaths, sociopaths w- were just that way behaviorally, and that's it was, you know, uh, nurture that brought them up to be like that, the triad of, of behaviors or whatever, and, and sort of that a traumatic background. But there is strong evidence now to suggest there is a, a very strong neurological uh, basis or you know some sort of brain damage here's a message from our sponsor so jen have you ever like signed up for a gym or something or other and then they just keep taking this money out of your bank yes it's really really frustrating um you know if you want to cancel you want to cancel straight away do you know why free trials renew without your consent it's something that drives me mad absolutely mental Of course, it's a business scam out to get you. (laughs) Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take care of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions. That you don't need, want or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Which is approximately 500 quid. (laughs) (laughs) Because these damn companies make it hard to cancel your subscriptions, Truebill makes it incredibly easy to cancel. Just link your accounts and Truebill will make it easy to cancel your subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there for when you want to cancel any unwanted subscriptions. So you don't have to. Stay on top of your spending with Truebill. Get an effortless breakdown of your finances to see where your money is going and how to improve. Truebill will notify you of important events that need your attention so you're never caught off guard again. Like Jennifer B, he says, with your help, our family has saved 500 and $87 this year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. So don't fall for subscription scams. 
Start cancelling today at truebill.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. So go right now to truebill.com forward slash Sean. It could save you thousands per year. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. So would we... Say, for example, it's it's the same for, for those kind of people that commit those offences. Would you, if you had epilepsy, for example, we wouldn't lynch you because you had epilepsy. You know, it's something, if it's in you and it's programmed into your, the core of who you are in your brain, and there does need to, you know, the more we hide people under rocks, you know, obviously I'm coming from a psychology background who thinks, you know, we, we should be ripping people's brains apart and examine, not literally, obviously, but examining everything. And, you know, I think there's there's a lot to be learned, you know, um, particularly in places like America, where there's a lot more access to to um, to offenders. You know, here it's very difficult to sort of get people for research studies and stuff like that. But yeah, I just, I find it fascinating. And like say, if push someone under a rock, they'll stay there and we learn nothing. Exactly. All right, so we're on a typical day in style. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone way off tangent. <laughs> I think people will enjoy that conversation though. Yeah. So a typical day in style then. Is it like chow's in the house, first thing in the morning, come out and get your food? Is it that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd... Um, so I worked on uh, the one of the young offenders' houses, and that was always and that's fun. young female offenders. Yes, uh, we had female juveniles in one a house, and and we're talking like fourteen, fifteen year olds. So what kind of stuff are female juvenile offenders in? They were just like daft stuff. It was like, I mean, it it was at a time when there was. I mean, we're talking over. 20, you know nearly 25 years ago so there was a lot less focus on rehabilitation it was like uh, the asbo era and stuff like that and i think you know they were the kind of like they were they were today's like hoodies you know whereas now there's a lot more move to sort of let's do everything we can to sort of prevent but they were in for all sorts you know they were just as bad as the men or the the male juveniles you know um a lot of stealing a lot of stealing, uh, car crimes, stuff like that, robberies, things like that. Um, a lot of them, unfortunately, were sex workers at you know at a young age, which was heartbreaking. But yeah, you can imagine trying to wake up twenty teenagers in a morning. <laughs> so that was always interesting. So one of them, they were little buggers. Actually, they used to terrorise the night stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd come out of their rooms and like throw soap at them and food and stuff like that and if that was the case I'd make sure I came to work early on a Sunday morning do like a fire drill at six o'clock in the morning to get them out of bed is this a dorm situation yeah yeah um so yeah you you wake them up they come down, they get breakfast, you do your roll check, you count. And then it's pretty much you'd send most, particularly the young offenders, they were nearly all in education. You'd send them off into education um, and, and that would be you. So you'd have your basic administration tasks to do for the day. Then they're back for lunch. Then you count them again. Then you lock them up. Then you go for lunch and the whole thing starts again. But, you know, they're very needy, very needy. So, you know you become mum, dad, um, you know, postman, counsellor, priest. You become their everything. 
um, and you have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, all the emotion, all the teenage emotions and, you know, hormones. And Do a lot of them not have parents? Um, a lot come from single parents. Um, uh, uh, just fractured homes, really. Fractured, you know, they might be getting brought up by gran, for example, or, you know, an aunt or something like that. Um, there are quite a few that come from the care system. Um, and we do know now that, you know, there are, I think, 25% of the population of the whole of the prison system have been in care. And in care, a lot of bad things happen. So in care, exactly. Right. So, you know, it, it's it's perfect storm, really. Um, so, yeah, it's it's the, the, the need level is extreme with women. Um, and then for teenage girls it's even worse it must be mayhem in that dorm at night <laughs> well unfortunately um there would there would be sexual assaults it was it was women it, on women very much so very common and what i mean how does that work then if it's so nine times i mean a lot of women were, were straight you know heterosexual and would come into prison and and become you know lesbian and oh. we we called it jail gay we, and, ca- we called it gay for the stay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And whether that gave them a degree of sort of protection or, you know, just, uh, you know, women gravitate to, you know, uh, are more likely to have a closer relationship, that, that kind of sort of closer physical relationship anyway. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes it would, uh, I mean, we, me and, and, and another member of staff, we uh, we managed to get some convictions actually because they were urinating on um, the younger girls. We had a number of sort of really bad bullies, but again, tragic, tragic lives, backgrounds. But if you're a nobody outside and you have a shit life, you know, you come into prison and you, and you can give yourself some status and some power and some control back. You know, so we, you know, there was there was. Quite often we knew when drugs, someone had drugs on them and it would, we called it decrutching, where they physically go in, pin the girl down and physically, yeah, and it was quite often that um, implements would be used, spoons, forks, um, ends of, of, of mop handles, things like that, and obviously that can cause a significant amount of damage. Um, was that always to try and get drugs or was that part of an assault on sometimes? It, it, it was mainly to do with drugs, but there were other, you know, there was, there was, there was one girl who was particularly sexually aggressive to, to, to the more vulnerable ones. Mm. And she, you know, she was, she was the ones that would urinate on them. She'd beat them up. She'd sexually assault them. She'd, you know, so she would quite often have people wanting to be her girlfriend, wanting to be with her because, you know, it was safer to be with her than to be on the receiving end of her. How would you manage someone like that? Well, we we actually moved her up to the highest security of the wing, and then eventually, it was it was very very difficult to segregate young offenders. Very difficult. The the, the rules and the red tape and the sort of administration and that goes into placing someone a female that age onto a segregation unit but she did end up on the segregation unit because she was such a danger to other girls so she was always drug seeking behavior she was aggressive she was aggressive with staff she was a bully you know and you have to throw the sort of 
kitchen sink at these people. Um, and, and like I say, you have to maintain your professionalism, but really you just want to say, you fucking asshole, you know, you absolute piece of what have you. But we did manage to get some convictions because the work that we did, which was amazing, which was the first time that had ever happened. Because I think the, the assaults at style just used to just used to happen. The people were dealt with and that was that. And they still had to carry on living in the same environment. That's awful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we think we're talking young girls oh, as well. My God. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to sit and interview and take these girls' statements. And listen to having come from a life of abuse themselves and to come into prison um, and for it to continue. Yeah, not good. So what was the highs and lows for you at Style? The highs were definitely the camaraderie mm. because you were working. I, I can swear, can't I? I know can, I've been yeah. swearing <laughs> quite a bit. The, 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 some of the days were absolutely shit. And I mean, you'd be rolling around, you'd be covered in piss, shit, blood, vomit, cutting people down, fighting with people, and your 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 colleagues became your your, your family. You spent more time with them than you did at home, and you've probably heard that from, from people before. You know, it's that, and it's that kind of when you're in it all together, that gallows humor that get. And I mean, I have to say, I, I, some of the best laughs i've ever had have been and it's it's never been at the expense of someone it's just been you know quite dark humor whatever but you know just for example we used to do i used to do bingo calling on the wing at christmas we always used to have it because christmas is rubbish when you're in prison so we always i used to go on the karaoke and do my abba and all the prisoners would be like miss miss can we go on yet i'd be like fuck off no i've got waterloo to do you know and we just had it was that real sense of and also that you you your highs were you felt that you were making a bit of a difference. You were saving lives. You were managing to stop people from taking their own life. You, you know, you you patched people up. You did your best, you know. Some used to like, there was one little girl called Kerry that used to come in, in a little Welsh girl, never forget her. And she loved coming. She'd come up to me and she'd hug me and she'd be like, oh. Miss Dagley. And you you couldn't help but like, come here, what you what you done now? And they say, They've accused me of stabbing a security guard with a syringe, but I didn't miss. I didn't. <laughs> and she did. She she was one of these that if she'd done it, she'd say she'd done it. Yeah. So those, you know, the highs were were the laughs, the experience that it gave me that enabled me to have a really long career um, and a, a successful career. The lows were the was the emotional toll that it took on me. Now, as you know, I said earlier. I had some life experience, but I'd never seen any blood. I'd never seen a large amount of blood, for example, and I'll never forget that smell. There's a smell. What was the situation with the large amount of blood? Well, that was actually down at Wormwood Scrubs. That was first, um, and it was someone who'd cut their arm, and there was spray up over the walls. And it was weird because it was what we call, uh, you know, um, it was a perspex door, so you can observe them. And I remember walking past and the floor was blue. And I walked back the other way and the floor was red. So obviously you go in, you deal with it, and it's the smell. There's a smell of a lot of blood. 
And it's things like that that don't leave you. Like iron or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's really... Mm. If you've ever, like, cut yourself and, and, and licked, like, a cut or whatever, it's like that but translated into a smell. It's really odd. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of the, the... To be honest with you, the lows didn't involve necessarily prisoners. As traumatic as it was to, you know, cut someone down after they've pissed and shit on you or, you know, you'd had the shit kicked out of you, which, which I did a few times, you know. It was stuff that happened with staff. I mean... The bullying, the misogyny, you know, the assaults from male, you know, the having been on the receiving end of assaults from men, male staff, um, but you didn't report it. You never reported it. Um, There was a governor that I said that he actually resigned. An investigation was done. He actually resigned, the one who I called Jimmy Savile. And I remember going in for my interview with these two really high up people in the prison service and there were a stack of folders and a folder for each victim. And he made me want to leave the job. I almost had, I mean, I've got, I did have a certain amount of resilience then. I was kind of like quite ballsy, like, no, you go back in and you face it and you carry on. But actually he kind of destroyed my faith in, in, the prison service really kind of really gave me a bad taste in my mouth. And that, that was around 2012, right, let's, 2013. Um, let, let's get to that then in yeah. the order of things. I know, yeah. All right, so, so just going back to style then, any other notable stories from style before we go to the next, to Scrubs? Probably more than I could ever, ever tell. Literally, there was... Every day. Every was... day was, was party time. And it was, uh, just give you an example, one weekend we had 90 incidents of self-harm or suicide. 90? 90. 90? 90. How many prisoners were there? There would probably be about 10, 15 prisoners committing those. It would be people that were doing it one after the other I after see. the other. Um yeah, and then one weekend I came in and they said, oh, we're glad you're in early. We think there might be seven dead down on the wing. They weren't. They were, they'd take it. Someone had stolen a, a meth, bottle of methadone. One girl died, unfortunately. Yeah, they stole it because they could just, they reached through the bars where they were doing the methadone, reached through the bars, nicked it, and it was like a big bottle, you know, of methadone. And a lot of these are using methadone on top of, the street drugs that they're using in the prison. Yeah, and there was like a stream of ambulances and we thought we were going to lose all, you know, all the ones that had taken it. We just lost the one girl. But yeah, there's, there, I literally, you could, I could just regurgitate hours and hours of incidents. We're going to have to, you're going to have to write a trilogy then, not a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one last instant, which again, I'll yeah. never forget. One last instant. So it's quite sad, quite a sad case. So we had a psychiatric, psychiatric unit there called the Riemann unit. And unfortunately there are some women that are incredibly, incredibly mentally ill. We're not talking the personality disorders, the, you know, the ones that have, are able to rationalize a little bit more. The schizophrenics. Yeah. The schizophrenics, yeah. the bipolars. Um, so there was a, um, a young, young black woman who had been a law student at Manchester University and she just lost the plot, just completely went into psychosis. Mm. I think she, as I remember, I might be wrong, but as I remember, she um, went to stab someone outside. It might have been a family member. So 
as as it was in the olden days, you don't send them to psychiatric hospital, you send them to prison because we're well more equipped to cope with it. Anyway, she was um, gone, away with the fairies. So she was uh, quite petite. She was about 22, maybe mid-20s, long, long dreadlocks, really long dreadlocks. But she was quite small, quite petite, and she had a knife. She'd sharpened a knife or the plastic knives that they've got. She'd sort of, and she had it in her hand and she was ready to go at staff. Who, whoever opened the door because you have to open the door to them because you have to give them food and you have to give them drink and you have to give them medication. I'm trying to picture this then because like, I'm used to cells and a cell door. You're yeah. not talking about cells because it's a dorm, isn't it? No, this was on an actually cellular unit. Okay. On the, yeah, so She's they were, yeah, they, she, was, she was put in a cell. She was deemed far too dangerous to go in general population. Okay. So as usual, numpty here. Does anyone want to volunteer to go in and get her? And I always used to love a bit of a scrap. I was rubbish, like I was always getting put on my ass. But so they identified me and two male staff because because she was like small. But when people are mentally ill, they do seem to have super strength. Super strength. Yeah. Anyway, so what you do when you're dealing with a sort of violent incident like that? We go away. We put our sort of riot gear on. So you put your boiler suit on. You put your mask on. Your gloves. Your helmet. You're ready to go. So you check them once, so you can see the state of the cell the layout and everything. So we checked her and you, you tell them that we're coming in to get you. So they've got an opportunity to either surrender or whatever. So we sh- so she stood there ready to go, fully clothed, ready to go, knife in hand. So we went away for f- just five minutes, just have a, another sort of rebrief and say, right, who's doing what? You go there, we, I'll go there, I'll go there. You grab that hand, I'll grab that hand. And off we go. <laughs> By the time we went back to the cell, five minutes later, not even five minutes later, every single dreadlock had come out. So the dreadlocks were gone. She was naked and she was covered in soap, ready to go. I mean, you can't just suddenly go. Can I grab her? <laughs> so you don't suddenly get to the door and go, oh shit, the situation's changed. Let's come back. You literally have got to commit yourself. So you've got to go in. So I don't think, we used to have shin guards, but not knee guards. So I remember she had teeth like a horse and I, we went into the cell. We managed to disarm her, but she was fighting. Next thing, she locked her teeth onto my knee and I was literally like flinging my knee around, trying to get this woman off of her. And I'm shouting at everyone going, she's got my knee, she's got my knee, she's biting me. So I think I need her. And as I need her, her head smacked off the, like the ceramic like um, what the wash, washing basin, the ceramic washing basin. So we managed to restrain her back on the bed, but she's on her back naked. Two men shouldn't really be in there, but we'd already committed and we didn't have time to change over to female staff. So we needed what's called a leg officer. So you have one person on the head, one person on each arm. But if you're on your back and you're flailing your legs around, you need someone to come in. So she's there spread eagled on the bed with everything hanging out. And we always have staff on standby. And I remember a really good friend of mine, I won't mention her name. She came running in, but she didn't have a helmet on because we already had a restraint and had got rid of the weapon. So she just got a face full of fanny. The minute she came in, she got a face full of fanny. And we were like, don't let go, don't let go. So I've got like massive bruise knee. Prisoner's got blood coming off her head. We've got this poor 
officer, my friend, literally with her face in it. And she's just like, Jesus Christ. I mean, you can write it. It was just oh unbelievable. And it, she's like that at one point, she she was literally like a bar of slope. You were like grabbing hold of her. She's like, poof, <laughs> poof. But yeah. So how long did it take to get her out? Or oh, God, we, it was a good, it was a good, good, good battle. So about, I'd say about... 15, 20 minutes, which is quite, you know, normally you've probably seen it yourself in, in, you know, in America, you know, they're in, boom, done, straight out, handcuffed, whatever. We didn't have handcuffs, so we just had to hold her. So what what would they do to her next then to calm her down? Would you have to have an injection or something? No. So at that time, because they were, even though they were on a psychiatric unit, they weren't deemed a psychiatric patient. So we had no power whatsoever there's we can give it to them now there's something called rapid trank which is literally hold them down give them an injection everything goes we did sometimes give them diazepam anally if they were so if they were having like say a bit of drug psychosis or something i i was involved in an incident where i had to help the nurse pin the girl down and part her cheeks is that an injection thing it's just like a an insert that just goes in the backside with diazepam there was a woman that had been covered in her own shit for seven days seven days that was very unpleasant oh my god (laughs) can you describe that smell no (laughs) (laughs) do you want to hear it it's just of course we want to hear it just gross okay so this poor woman again she'd been living on the streets she wasn't she wasn't mentally well. She hadn't looked after herself in, in outside, let alone sort of coming into prison. And I, I noticed a distinct shift in the type of prisoners. As the, as the medium and high security mental health beds in hospitals started to diminish, we started to get them all in the prison. And we were woefully uh, ill-equipped to deal with not only the physical side of it, the mental health side, but also the rules and regulations. Our our rules and regulations were not up to date. So she started, I wouldn't even call it a dirty protest. I think she was so ill. She just couldn't look after herself. Um, so every day it was kind of like go to a door, throw some food in. Sometimes she'd smear that on herself. Sometimes she'd eat it, but then she, she stopped eating. And we were really, really concerned about her. But... We didn't know what to do. I mean, the managers, I wasn't a manager then. Um, the managers didn't know what to do. So it just went on and on and on. So seven days. And I think they had to go to the because the plan was that she was going to be restrained out of her room, restrained into a bath, scrubbed clean by a nurse while they, at the same time, whilst they're sort of disinfecting and, and cleaning her room and then put her back in a room but we had to get I think in the end special permission from like the home office because we were like can we just stick a hose in so none of us yeah you see that in the movies yeah 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 Yeah. no we weren't allowed to do that so again I was working somewhere else I didn't know this was being planned manager comes in we've got an incident up on the psychiatry unit have we got any volunteers dickhead here yeah I'll go (laughs) (laughs) not knowing what I was letting myself in for and when we got there I was like, no, 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 I can't do it. And they went, no one else will do it. You volunteered. You've got to do it now. And I was like, for fuck's sake, what? Oh, right, okay, just do it, just do it. So the bathroom, the plan was that her cell was there. It was about a 10-meter walk 
to a very small enclosed bathroom, small bathtub. So they'd been running the water, so it was steaming. So it's like a sauna in this. (laughs) It was like a sauna in this bathroom. So we went in. She didn't actually fight with us that much, but she was very resistant. So it wasn't like we could cajole her and say, you know, come on. So we had um, underneath our helmets, we had face masks on and we had like white paper suits over us. So we, so imagine you're hot, you're sweaty, you've got like your uniform on, your boiler suit on, your kit on, white paper suit, you've got gloves on, you've got a face mask, you've got a helmet on and you're taking this woman who is head to toe in shit all over her hair. It was like dreadlocks of shit in her hair. You're walking her or restraining her from her room into a sauna where all that lovely crusty shit is going to start falling off, steaming up. You're in your mask. You're already feeling queasy. I mean, I, I, when I'm hot anyway, I start to get a little bit ooh, nausea. So we got into the bathroom. We've still all got, and we crammed in. We still all got our helmets on. And I was like, I, I can't breathe. And it was like lesser of two evils. I either... Keep my, keep my helmet on and probably pass out or take my helmet on and deal with the smell. So <laughs> they came in, so we had another member of staff came in, took all our three helmets off, took my mask off. The smell hit me and I'm holding it and I'm thinking, I can't, I can't carry on. I, I, I'm going to have to let go. I, I cannot stand. I don't do shit. I, do, I just don't. I can, I can, I don't do bodily fluids in general, but I, I certainly can't do seven day old shit. So I remember the woman, a very, a very good friend of mine who's a manager at the time, she was next to me and she said, Holly, Holly, she said, I've put a shit ton of hairspray in today. Just put your hair, put your nose in my hair. So I'm restraining. <laughs> <laughs> it's just farcical. So we're restraining this woman. We're cramped up. A nurse is waiting there with literally, a, you know, a scouring pad to get this off. I'm on the verge of vomiting. I'm hot. I'm sweating. I'm thinking, why the fuck did I volunteer for this? And there she is. And she said, put your nose in my hair quick. And it saved me because I just could smell the hairspray. And I was like, just breathe it in, breathe it in. And it was all fine. And then we managed to like lift her and get her into the, get her into the bath. And and then all the the scrubbing started. Um, But yeah, that was not something I was ever anticipating. I mean, I don't do dirty protests. I'm not. Was it it left to the nurse to scrub her down? Yeah. Yeah. We weren't allowed to do it. And I think that was it because we were, that's why we had to get, uh, permission from the home office because we were enforcing some form of physical contact with her or some form of inverted commas treatment um so yeah <laughs> i mean those two stories you told me are so intense i imagine that like myself the viewers are perhaps wondering what happened to those women if you know what happened to them no and that's the sad thing these were just it's like you said you're saying to me that they're intense they don't seem intense to me they they were just that was just my job. That's just what I did. I've heard a lot of prison stories, but you're just taking it to the next level. No, we've shut been up. hundreds of people. <laughs> I think it's because it's women as well. There's is there's a real lack of sort of insight into women's prisons, and there's Definitely. maybe lots of misconceptions. I mean, things have changed and sort of grown a lot since then. But yeah, the sad thing is, these women would say go to court, and then you never see them again, and that that was the reality of it. Um, 
so yeah, I think the woman with the dread with the dreadlocks and the knife, I think she actually got sectioned. She went back to she went back to court, and then event. I think because we were able to pre- prevent present a case for what her behaviour had been like in custody to say this is more than we can manage here. We cannot shoot, and because she was psychotic, we couldn't forcibly medicate her. She needed treatment, so she managed to. Um, but yeah, seven day shit woman. I, I never know what happened to her. So for people, people watching this, if you want to see videos of that, we've done interviews with women who've been in prison in, in, in the UK, that is, we've recently put videos up with Fran, a separate podcast, also with Tawana out of London, Fran out of Reading, you get the um, first hand experiences of the dramas and the love stories and everything else all right so are we are we are we stopping with style now have you got more style no we can we can we can put style to bed but i'm I'm, I'm liking style (laughs) i'm sure do you know what i'm pretty sure style will come back later on okay (laughs) it always does because i go oh yeah remember that time when let's let's pray for that (laughs) so all of a sudden then you two months in style and then all of a sudden you volunteer, is it, to go yeah. to London? Yeah, and I, and, and I thought, you know, it'd be good experience. It's nearer my boyfriend, a bit more money. Didn't think through the consequences. So Scrubs, is this the female? No, male. This is the male one. Oh, yeah, what was the female one called? Because I spoke Holloway. There. I spoke at Holloway a few times before it got closed down, yeah. Yeah. All right, so you, you, you're going to Scrubs. <laughs> Do you know, after two months with the women, are you pretty much broken in and ready for what's next? Oh. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Honestly. Oh my God. Okay. Take first day. So I'm like, you, you've seen what I'm like. I'm pretty smiley person. I'm yeah. pretty bubbly. I'm pretty like, hi. And, and I was even more so when I was 21. I was like this titchy little, I'm only little, I'm like five foot, one and a half, two. Um, I was quite petite then. Um, and there I was and in, a, in a female prison, you know, a lot of staff did put makeup on and did do the hair. It was just like, so I didn't even, it didn't even compute not to. So there I was, clean, fresh uniform, hair piled on top of my head, makeup, smiley face, walked in. And they, I was the only one out of my group that got sent down to London that got sent to Wormwood Scrubs. And just to give you a bit of background, in um, in the sort of late 90s, sort of 1997, 1998, there was a huge scandal at Wormwood Scrubs Prison and about 60 staff were suspended for brutality. And we're not just talking assaults on prisoners, we're talking campaigns of brutality. So 60 staff were suspended. So, and this was predominantly on the segregation unit. So they needed staff. We had spare staff, so that's why we all went down. And... (laughs) I walked in, they sent me to the wing, I picked up a set of keys, I sent, they sent me to a wing and the principal officer came out and he went, what are you doing here? I went, my, my name's Holly, I'm prison officer, I'm here on detached duty, I've come to, and he just looked me up and down and he went, what the fuck have they sent me? That is the exact words, what the fuck have they sent me? And he went, there's my office. Go and sit in there. There were no women. There were no, and, and the ones that I did see were probably pushing 60. There's my office. Go and sit in my office. If I need a cup of tea, I'll let you know. <laughs> so that was that. So that was like walked on. And I'm a bit feisty. I'm a bit fiery. And, you know, I'm like, 
and I, and I piped up. I was like, look, look, I've, I've just come out of training. I know what I'm doing. I'm as qualified as the next person, you know. And I think by the second day, I was allowed to come out of the office and, and work on the landing, I think. And Did that was... tell you not to wear makeup and stuff? Well, this, this came on later. They said, um, Andy said, and if the bell goes, i.e. there's an alarm and an instant, he said, you go in that room, you lock yourself in, you do not get involved. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so second day I come out, I'm out, I'm out my box, I'm out my cell, and I start to engage with prisoners on the landing because staff weren't speaking to me. Not one member of staff spoke to me. So I'm, I'm a chatty person. I, I, I was believing interacting with prisoners. I think it's the best way you can develop relationships, get information, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think I've been 10 minutes on the landing and I got called in again. You're flirting with them. And I went, I'm not, I'm just being myself. I'm just like, can I not speak to them? And they went, where do you come from? I said, style prison. And they went, oh, there you go then. Because obviously, you you know, you're really heavily involved in this stuff. And they said, um, make sure you wear a white bra and make sure you don't wear makeup. And um, that was the second, second third day. Um by this, so I, I did I only did four weeks in there in total before I went to Brixton. So by the second week, I was kind of assigned a bit more of a permanent wing. Um, so what would happen is again, I was the only female on the wing. At lunchtime, they would put porn on in the staff room, and it was all men, and they'd put porn on. And even knowing you were there, yeah, and I'd have to, I'd have my little lunch in a lunchbox, and I'd have to eat my lunch down at the end of the wing and there was like an old guy really nice really you know really caring and it was really cold at the end of the wing as well but I just wouldn't sit up in the office and it was really cold and he came down he said are you okay and he he gave me his jumper and I said and it was like a really old-fashioned prison jumper and I said oh I'll give it to you back at the end of the shift he said no 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 keep it and that little bit of kindness but I did end up working on the segregation unit as well this is all in four weeks So I'm terrified. So there's me and this other officer from somewhere else. We're both like relatively new, relatively young. I'd never worked segregation. Is it a man that you're with? Yeah, yeah. Um, Prisoners were fine. Absolutely fine. A little bit noisy, but absolutely fine. There was a stream of male staff that kept coming down. And one finally admitted it and he went, we were told there was some new totty on the seg that we had to come down and see. I'm like, for fuck's sake. I mean, I don't think it was because, you know, it's not because I'm a, a Claudia Schiffer. It was like, he's a young female. <laughs> they were like, dogs with two dicks. Um, so, yeah, that was that that was sort of worm with scrubs. And I, I, I remember, because I was there on my own, and because about 20 of us had all come down to London, everyone else got to go to Brixton, and I got sent to worm with scrubs on my own. And eventually I said, can you send me to Brixton? Because I really wasn't comfortable so yeah i only did four weeks at worm scrubs and then i went straight to brixton was the alarm button pressed at any time by anybody in there no not worm with scrubs but uh, i tell you what they i tell you what they did do as well so it was when you had to go out uh, um, on exercise so now they don't send staff onto the exercise yards because it's you're in a really vulnerable position so you observe from like a, 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 a standing point um but it was at a time, you know, when they had to all work, walk around in a circle. These are like going back to sort of porridge days. Midnight Express. Yeah. Oh, God, no, it's a traumatising film. Um, and 
it was when staff would walk around in twos as well and no one would walk with me <laughs> no one would walk and it's like cringy isn't it it's like embarrassing so it, it was full of yardies at the time and so what do they do woman on her own walking around the yard and it's like I can't tell them to fuck off and do one because I'm really vulnerable here so they're like crowding around me and you know asking me really personal questions and asking they're saying would they like you know can they take me out when they get I mean they weren't really horrible but it was very very intimidating I could see other staff looking at me not one person came over I mean fortunately like I say I've, I've got I've got a bit of the banter and you know I was able to you know sort of fend it off a little bit but I'm like you know I'd always had quite a stereotypical judgment about you know the yardies because I grew up down south they were renowned for being you know really quite violent and all the rest of it and I, I was terrified so yeah I went to Brixton which wasn't much better <laughs> so first day in Brixton <laughs> oh let me go back I, I, do you know what I just remember an overwhelming sense of relief because um a lot of my friends were there so it was like really, it, it felt good. It felt, but there was a big drinking culture there. And the staff? Yeah, yeah. So it, Brixton had a club, so everyone would go out at lunchtime and get drunk. So um, so I settled in for, for about a week. Nothing, nothing major happened. Um, I think then that was my very first bell. So I remember going for my very first bell. And in a male prison, when the bell goes, it's like charge of the light brigade. The, the world and his wife attends that bell. It doesn't matter if you're a quarter of a mile, three floors up somewhere, you uh, you go. So <laughs> I, just, I swear to God. Uh, so you had to run past all the cells. So there's an exercise yard and you have to run from one unit to the other. The quickest way is across the exercise yard. So as you're running, all the cell doors are going bang, 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 bang. And... Look at the tits on that. Get your tits out, miss. And you're like trying to run like holding older yourself. And you're like, shut up, fuck off. Because <laughs> all you want to do is get there and do your job. But by the time you get there, you're fucked. You're sweaty and all the men have got involved and sorted it out. But I was kind of like, right. They were very respectful to my face. Uh, but yeah, when they're behind doors and you're running around. So it was very... Um, yeah, I, I had quite a traumatic time at Brixton. I was um, member of staff tried to force himself on me. I, I don't need to relive it, but yeah, are you able to describe? Yeah, yeah. Oh, about? it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't traumatize me to speak mm. about it. But um, yeah, it was really. It just seemed so. I. I just. I'm so gullible. I just believe in the goodness of people. I think um, we'd worked together a couple of times. Now people knew I had a boyfriend. He was a well-respected member of staff. He wasn't at that jail, but it was another jail. He was a well-respected member of staff. He was quite a, a scary member of staff. People knew not to mess with him. Um, anyway, I'd been working with this guy. I won't say his name, even though I remember it. And he was really sweet, really, you know, for the, for, you know, there weren't many staff that were very, very friendly to me there. And we were working in the office together. I think we'd worked together a few times before and we'd had a bit of banter, but... I was not a flirt. I was not flirting with him because I was in a relationship, and I know the difference between banter, flirting, and sort of giving people the come on. Um, so we'd both locked up the wing. 
one of us, both of us were scheduled to stay, but only one of us needed to. And we were in the office and he said, uh, I'll let you go if you give me a kiss. I went, no, you're okay. Uh, you're all right. Um, I'd rather stay. <laughs> and he got off the chair. He was like stopping me from leaving the room. And he got off the chair and he moved over and he tried to pin me down on the chair and um, basically like stick the lips on me and, and whatever else. And I managed to sort of get out from underneath him and run out of the room. The worst bit was the next day, and I hope none of my ex-colleagues are listening to this because I don't want to sort of hurt anyone's feelings, but um, the next day I walked into work and all the all the people that I'd come with from Style were all staying in the same hotel together. Um, we were all working in different parts of the prison and then we'd all get back together at, say, lunchtime. And this was after the, this guy the night before. and everyone's been really shitty with me and ignoring me and I was like what's wrong guys what what's and they said oh we've heard a rumor what you did in the office with him and they said we know we know your your they knew my boyfriend and they were like thought they were sort of loyal to him and they went how could you do that and I went what what have I done basically he told everyone that he chagged me in the office and um that I was fair game and I was terrified because I thought, what if this gets back to my boyfriend? What if are other staff looking at me like I'm that kind of person? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't. It was in a wing office. They're surrounded by cells. I mean, not that I'd do it anyway. Were, but... were you able to clear that up then with your colleagues? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, and I just said, it's bullshit. And I think it's because I'd knocked him back that his ego had taken a little bit of a battering, shall we say. Um, but nothing happened to him. Didn't report it. Didn't report. I, I've been questioned about my sexual preferences in front of five, sorry, 300 prisoners by male staff. I've been thrown in cells by male staff and the doors have been locked. It was, honestly, what? yeah. But this was just the culture and, and people, like I say, I know what banter is and, you know, I spent enough time in the prison service to know where the line is. But some of the stuff that used to go on, was just like, whoa, you know, would never get away with it now. And it was put up and shut up. And if you put up, you got the respect later on because it was like, and I kind of think that's, like I say, I had quite a successful, you know, career in the prison because I think I was known as someone that just sucked it up and got on with it and, you know, was quite quite resilient about it. Um so I can recount these stories with not a lot of emotion now that it's, it's, I don't look back on them and think, God, that was traumatizing. It was just like, it was just part and parcel of what happened. What other memorable dramas happened at Brixton? Oh, we had a big kickoff in visits once, which was um, terrifying to say the least. What's the layout of the visits? So it's just like a big hall, basically. So, and then you have um, the desks are not fixed to the floor. Some prisons they are, but these, uh, and some prisons the chairs are, are fixed to the, the floor. But it, it was quite an old sort of dilapidated prison, you know, and, and it was quite an old visiting room. And it was always full. So you could have anyone, say, about 50 prisoners on visits at any one time. So if you think two visitors maximum prisoner, so you're talking maybe 100 visitors, maybe 50 prisoners, and um, they're just laid out in rows, and prisoner sits on one side, family sits on the other. Do they have, like, 
uh, food. Yeah, they'll have like a ca- yeah, they're quite. They'll have like a cafe and things like that where you can go get or machines where you can go get food and a drink and stuff. And there's always like a, a main desk where the person sort of checks in and checks out. And then at the back of the visits area was a search area. So all the prisoners that come through come through from a holding cell. We would search them and then they'd go on their visit. But there was a guy, and he had been he'd assaulted a member of staff in the week previously and he was um what we what we'd call a three officer unlock so he'd always have to be unlocked with three officers present because he was you know he was dangerous but i think they were quite scared of him you know he'd assaulted a member of staff and he was due a visit um with his partner i think he was but he was due a visit and there was a lot of to and I, I didn't get involved but i knew there was a lot of to and froing about whether he should have this visit, whether he shouldn't. And I think the decision was made by further up the food chain that he should be allowed this visit. And I think staff were quite against it. Anyway, he came on his visit and he was quite surly with staff, but he wasn't aggressive because he wanted his visit. And they know that we have the power to stop that visit straight away if, if they're, if they're doing anything. So, um, so he came on his visit and, everyone's allotted a certain amount of time and it was getting to the end of his visit so we've got a busy visits hall already so we've got kids in there we've got different family you know family but it's kids that's you know that was one of the big things we've got staff in there but not loads these tend to have less staff on visits because it's a less high risk area just because of you know um everyone wants the visit and they want to be there um so Lots were taken as to who was going to tell him to finish the visit. And in the end, it sort of deferred to rank. It was like, there was because they have a senior officer in charge of the visiting hall. So it kind of like, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. You can go and do it. You're the boss. You get paid more than us. So I think he gave him like a five minute warning. What did this guy look like? Uh, big, black guy, big, muscly like tight teacher powerful had already salted staff you know he was you know handsome guy you know really and his girlfriend was very attractive you know he was um but he just looked handy he just really looked handy and like i say he had a history of assaulting staff already um so the senior officer so went over and sort of gave him a five minute warning which is quite common um so they can say the goodbyes and they can but he knew staff were scared of him. <laughs> so he's pushing his luck and pushing his luck and pushing his luck. And it's like, we've got a room full of kids. We've got a room full of women. We've got mums in there. We've got families. It's what do you do? So I think the SO kind of took it upon himself. I mean, it's not how I would have handled it. Um, he took it upon himself to take two members of staff there and grab him stood behind him, grabbed him and it went off. (laughs) And I mean, went off. So the alarm bell went, someone pressed the alarm bell. So that signals to the rest of the prison, charge of the light brigade. Okay. (laughs) But at the meantime, we've got chairs flying. We've got desks flying backwards. He is literally throwing staff around like rag dolls. In the end, there's like, there's a pile on. 
So we, it's quite common to have a pylon in prison. You know, like when you're a kid, it's like pylon. Quite common to have one of those. And he's like, in my mind, it's sort of in my memory, he's like the Incredible Hulk, just rah, like flinging stuff off like this. But then the visitors are joining in. So his girlfriend's then kicking off and swinging at staff because I was with my friend, another female officer, and we were like, we were like, oh shit, we're going to have to go and deal with her. So like we ran over to sort of try, but I didn't know, I don't know, I still don't know what the rules are in terms of restraining members of the public. (laughs) I know we can restrain prisoners. I'm thinking, and there's kids crying, there's chairs flying. Next thing, the girlfriend, a nurse had turned up because nurses always turn up for, for an instant. Next thing, the girlfriend's picked up a chair and thrown it at the nurse well, the nurse has kicked off then. The nurse has, like, gone to attack out and gone to throw a chair back. So there's literally chairs flying, children crying, trying to grab hold of a visitor. Other visitors, like, if they weren't physically involved, they were verbally lambasting us and say, you know, you fucking arseholes, get off, get off him. Because the last thing you want is the public to see you restraining someone. It's not, not a great look, let's put it like that. Um, and I remember my friend, had a, a dear old friend of mine, had been one of the, because we were young, we were classed as the keen ones. <laughs> he'd, he'd sort of been collared by this SO to sort of, and all I remember thinking is, he's at the bottom of the pylon. <laughs> he's at the bottom of the pylon. And I think like he, his finger got bitten or something. And quite often staff would be hurting other staff because if you think there's like one person, the perpetrator at the bottom of it, but sometimes that is the only way you could subdue them, just like literal body weight on top of them. Um, yeah, so that was interesting. And I think after that, I think we all had a bit of a, a union walkout because there was, there'd been a couple of in, other incidents where a member of staff had been thrown down the stairs on the wing. That This guy had been sort of allowed to have this visit when potentially, so there was a lot of animosity towards management. Bad decision. Yeah, bad decision how it was handled maybe a bit at the time, bad decision, how he responded wasn't great. And uh, yeah, so um, we had sort of a bit of a sit-in in the visits hall and we're like, because we knew visits are one of the last things that you want to cancel. They're the main thing that people look forward to. And we remember we sat in the visits hall and refused to move. All the staff from the prison refused to move. And the governor's there imploring us all to get back to work. We're all numpties from style just sat there going, what the fuck is this all about? I'm used to working on a dormitory block with, you know, and the the governor had to go out and then tell all the visitors that the visits was cancelled because we deemed the place was unsafe and we hadn't voted no confidence in the management. It was all really dramatic <laughs> so the visitor the female visitor yeah. for the man was she charged with anything for kicking I, off i don't i don't think she was in the end i think she was just um because the the the, the most you can do to people is ban them from visit and that probably hurts a lot more than anything else so she was removed and then banned um so yeah that was that was that but it was um what about the policing of people bringing drugs in through visits? That's well, that is that's primarily down to to visit staff and you know, it's very difficult especially if you don't have 
enough female staff to fully so you know if you think of when you're coming in through the prison say you're a female coming in to visit a male um unless you have very very specific robust intelligence that they are bringing drugs in and i mean like really robust so sometimes you might actually physically call the police to arrest them there and then so that they get caught with the drugs on in very very limited circumstances prisons have the um authority to strip search full search a prisoner full strip search. full strip search but very 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 rare it's never happened in the time that i've been you know in the prison service that would have to be a female's yeah. strip search yeah. in a female yeah um so of the obvious place for women to hide things is internally and unfortunately i've also seen women hide drugs in babies nappies oh yeah yeah and you know that's that's in america same yeah and it's really distasteful but all it takes is for you know a person to come in with the drugs um go to the toilet get it out come back put either put it in the mouth pass it across like that and basically so uh, you know there are cctv's better now it's been upgraded but generally through you know it's based on intelligence prior and then visit staff eyeing the uh, you know basically observing what's going on um and yeah we I'm, I'm i'm jumping forward again but you know working at liverpool prison there were lots of time lots of people got caught um but you, you're reliant on good inte- good intelligence good information yeah because in america the guys who specialize in smuggling you know brag how many packages they can store inside themselves oh, and they charge a fee to the people who want to bring them in. And the sad thing is I saw people like have wives and girlfriends bring drugs. Wives and girlfriends that get busted. And then they end up in. And then, yeah, they'd end up in. And the man, all the man was pissed off about was losing the drugs. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was always amazed at the mobile phones that they got in. And I'm like... How the, I mean, I might be naive. I mean, I don't think I am, but I'm like, the width of some of them. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> physically, how does that get in there? Drug, you know, drugs can be, but yeah, it's, it, you're very limited. It's like, so for example, you know, even now they don't want um, men to, to squat during a search, but occasionally they put it in between the cheeks of the arse and you can, you can, um, get them to squat and it drops out and then it's a free-for-all as to who's going to get it. But I'd be like, have it, mate. I'm not picking that up after where it's been. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're at Brixton then. <laughs> Do you know, had... we're, we're not even into the first year <laughs> of my service. It might have to be a series. <laughs> We've only got 20 more years to go. <laughs> Brixton then, what other dramas happened at Brixton? Oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh god so the um once again it's gonna be like you have to pick your top 10 dramas at each prison i think yeah each prisoner and i've worked at a lot of prisons oh and just to be clear to people i'm no longer in the prison service which is what allows me to be able to talk so freely same with the cops we interviewed yeah yeah retired from it um so there must be something about when there's certain areas of the prison that people don't want to work. So when you've got new members of staff there or people that are on detached duty, it's like sling them on there. So we always used to end up like me and a sort of core group of, of colleagues used to end up on the, the psychiatric <laughs> unit again. <laughs> and it was like 
just think a bright Silence of the Lambs. So you know that <laughs> corridor in Silence of the Lambs. Um, but you had them on either side. So you had cells like that on either side. And you would run the gauntlet, <laughs> literally. So if you remember what some of the... Multiple MIGs. Multiple MIGs, that's it. I mean, I'm not saying that that was, uh, got aimed at me, but you would run the gauntlet. So they had these little hatches as well. So they're solid hatches. So it, there's no perspex barrier. So you'd put the hatches up or put the hatches down. Now, to be humane, we let the hatches down, but you were running the gauntlet and they'd like squeeze their heads in between these like little hatches and they'd spit at you, swear at you, chuck things at you. Or it'd be like, like I say, there's one guy, I remember him hanging out and just going, look at the butterflies, look at, you know, like completely away with the fairies. Um, but yeah, so it used to be on like, a, a, I think it was four floors. So just think of like a normal office building with like floors and then like a set of back stairs that came down. And, um, oh, my God, the the wards. Do you remember the, the – I'm probably – I mean, I'm known for my sense of drama, but to me, in my memory, do you remember the Romanian wards where they had all the orphans when it all came out in the 90s that when the fall of Ceausescu and they had yes. went into these hospitals and all these people in, like, that was what it was like. You know, I remember one colleague coming to me saying, I've just played pool with Jesus for the last half hour. I mean, these guys were off it. Um, and they were just wandering around. The conditions were really bad. It was dirty. It was the interaction with staff was uh, probably similar to, to what you said about in America. There was no physical face-to-face -face contact it was done behind perspex and bars and stuff like that and it was just a generally really intimidating place and and also I'm always a bit warier of the psychiatric patients because just of the predict you know the unpredictability of them but also the fact that we can't forcibly medicate means that their 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 sort of conditions can be even more unstable couple of that in with using illicit drugs whatever so i'm always a bit more wary i'm always a bit more sort of on guard so i was there was a job called visits runner so your job was to and you had a radio and your job was to literally run from one place to the other pick one person up take them to the other place so i was visits runner this day and they said we need you to go to the fourth floor of the healthcare, pick this guy up and bring him back. So when you're not on the unit working with them day to day, you don't know what they're in for. You have no idea. You just, 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 it's a body to pick up and take somewhere. So I took him and I picked him up and we started walking down the back stairs. So you're on your own walking down the back stairs. Is he restrained? No, I'm just walking him by myself from there to visit. No cuffs. No cuffs, no nothing, just a radio. And he started to make sexual comments to me. And I was thinking, shit, I'm on stairs. You're really vulnerable when you're on stairs. He's a thousand times bigger than me. He was really intimidating. He started to touch my hair. Oh, so he's behind you? Yeah, he's starting to touch my hair. And he went to... He, he went to like take me by the shoulder and turn me round because I'd said to him, don't, 
but I didn't want to be too aggressive, like, don't fucking touch my hair. So I thought if I'm really aggressive with him, that could trigger something off. I went, don't do that. That's really inappropriate. You're not supposed to touch me. And so as we're walking down and then we walked to like a flat bit and he tries to get me up against the wall. And I actually thought, I'm going to, I'm, something's going to happen here. And I froze with fear. So I couldn't even have the wherewithal. And also I thought if I alert staff on my radio, so it's before the times when they had like an emergency, you had an emergency button locator thing. And I thought if I alert staff, then that might trigger him to do something else. So I'm frozen with fear. And I thought I was going to be assaulted as in a way that we, we can imagine. Mm. And, um, Eventually, I found my feet, and I ran, and I ran, 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 ran downstairs, and I Was got he following you. Yeah, but not not running, running, just following. Uh, but I knew if I could get to the gate down there, I could lock him in that space so he couldn't get out. And um, yeah, so I managed to get to the front desk. And there were psychi- predominantly, they used to call them healthcare officers. So they're officers that had nursing training as well. And there was like psychiatric nurses there. And I told them what had happened. And I was, I went home early that day, surprisingly. I remember ringing my mum. I was really distressed, ringing my boyfriend, you know, really thought it was not, it was the thought of what could have happened. Did they chase you? you well, I, late, happened then, you know? I later found out he was in for several rapes several stranger rapes and they had a marker on his file not to be left alone with female staff so someone made a mistake yeah um i in my paranoia at the time after everything that had happened you know i thought has someone done this intentionally to put me at risk um but i think they, they did take me seriously i you know he was sort of Unfortunately, with the people with psychiatric illnesses, the terms, the ranges of punishment are quite limited because their treatment needs come first. But I remember I got given a whistle <laughs> that I've still got a whistle, and um, I got given a stave, the wooden staves. What's a stave? So it's like um, the police have all the fa- you, now they have the flick out buttons mm. in the old days. So think porridge, think a, a leather strap. Mm. and it's just like a rounder's bat, <laughs> and that's it. So I had a whistle. I got given a whistle and a rounder's bat, effectively. Probably just took that off you, wouldn't you? Well, I wouldn't have had time to get it out. I wouldn't, and to be honest with you, I don't, it was very rare you heard people whistle anyway. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do with a whistle? I've still got that whistle. My little boy plays with it it's like got special significance i'm like yeah after the fact you give me a whistle i could have done with this like an hour ago <laughs> so yeah that was um quite traumatizing should we say but again i look back at it and i think i'm not mad at him you know sort of laws of the jungle you you know if you if you're if you're a lion and you walk with a lion what what they're gonna do you know it's like swimming with sharks so they let you go home early that day yeah and then you came back. Came straight back in the next day. Was it easy the next day or was it? Do you know what? I At the time I had, a, 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 like say, a resilience. And I felt like I had something to prove. I was quite, quite feisty, quite, you know, um, I wasn't one for 
later on in the job, I cried all the time, but I wasn't one for particularly, you know, I wanted to, I enjoyed the job despite everything. I really enjoyed it. Exciting. Yeah, it was exciting. It was something different every day. Liked working with the psychiatric cases because my sort of psychology background was really fascinated. Already knew that I probably wanted to get promoted. Um, so yeah, I had quite a, I sort of would just chalk it up to a bad experience. And, but like I say, if you let every single incident that happened to you put you on your ass and not be able to function, you just, you wouldn't last two minutes in the job. I mean, that's happening more now. I think with a, an influx of a lot of younger, inexperienced staff, you know, they're sort of not able to, not, I don't know, don't know whether it's because millennials or Gen Zs have changed or whatever, everyone's a bit softer, but I think it's like people are not, co- and you know, prisons have got more violent. Um, I just don't think people can cope. Um, and also, like I said, we had a very strong sense of com- camaraderie. You, you very much looked after your colleagues. So I never felt alone. It wasn't just me going through stuff, you know. So talking about multiple MIGs then and people throwing things at you from the b- bodies. So in America then, in Supermax, they've got a whole block of what's called shit slingers. And oh. these, these people would play with it or they'd make blowpipes or they'd use shampoo bottles and ch- oh. with tubes attached to them to, to protect Oh, I have it. heard of that, yeah. Did, did, were you experiencing that kind of thing when you were in, working with the psychiatric uh, people on that? No, that tended to be segregation prisoners because it is the most disruptive and nasty thing you can do to put forcing staff to work in uh, what we call dirty conditions is like a real psychological tactic. There was one guy later on in my service though, and he was a, um, what do they call it? An illegal immigrant. And he was, and this was quite, quite common. He was trying to feign mental illness in order to not be sent back to his country. So I had some sympathy because I'm like, yeah, I probably wouldn't want to go back. I think he was Syria or Iran or Iraq or something. And I'm like, yeah, I probably wouldn't want to go back there. Um, so he'd been assessed by everyone and like, like they were like, no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with him. So I think he'd sort of escalated his behaviour just enough to get back on the segregation unit when he realised that he wasn't sort of had much standing in the segregate like there were people that were way way worse than him he thought right I need to sort of escalate my sort of behavior now so he sat with a turd on top of his head for three days three days with the turd on his head <laughs> I just, I'm like fair play to the geezer you know he wasn't throwing it at us or anything he just sat there with it on him and then was he moving around or just stationary every time I saw him he was just sat cross-legged with it on his in the head same position yeah but then, like, when we did, I think it'd flick like, um, it would flick like little, it'd get some poo and make it into like a little Maltese. <laughs> and he'd like flick it under the door. <laughs> but that was quite common piss going under the door and stuff like that. People f- uh, flooding the toilets. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, shit's the worst thing, really. It's like, blood, I can deal with it. Vomit, not so good. Piss, yeah, horrible if you get it in the face or whatever. But yeah, poo is just a different matter. I think was it Samworth who told us that 
they were doing it there was a dirty process and they were trying to figure out how to stop it so when they let them out and put them back in the cells they put them in each other's cells so they ought to yeah 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 stopped after that yeah but what you tend to find is once one person does it it's but then they erect all these barriers around and staff have to be in sort of uh, personal protective equipment all the time i mean the staff get happy because they get paid an extra like 15 quid or something per shift for working under such horrible (laughs) conditions but sometimes you'd walk onto a unit and you'd just be like like the smell but then you get used to it and then especially when in later life when i was a governor and you're always on your feet you've always got your jacket on you don't stop for him to go for a wee or anything and i remember standing once in the segregation unit dirty protests going on piss coming underneath the door i think a fire was going on somewhere else and i'm there with my egg sandwich just eating my because you didn't get time you didn't get time no i'm not joking you didn't get time for tea so I had this trench coat with a fucking egg baguette in it. And I'm stood there and like chaos is erupting around me. Piss under the door, dirt protest, fire. And I'm just there munching on my egg sandwich. And people like that, are you for real? I was like, do you know what? I fuck it. I think I was that, I was that stressed. There was that much going on. I was just like, I need to eat my sandwich. Oh my God. I'd had this half eaten sandwich in my pocket for like 12 hours. It's like, fuck it. I don't care about the smell. I've got to eat. <laughs> we're going to build up to that <laughs> all right so um how long were you at brixton so i did about nine months at brixton nine all, all yeah. psychiatric not all occasionally on the wings and stuff like that and, and you know oh it's quite it's quite uncomfortable actually because um brixton where i used to i i grew up in hertfordshire and like just north of london and I remember working on this sea wing one day and uh, this prisoner saying to me, I know you from somewhere. And I'm like, no, you don't. I live up north. And he went, you used to be the barmaid at the White Lion, didn't you? And I was like, yeah. Oh, no. And yeah, he said, do you remember the such and such person? Do you remember that? Yeah, they've just done five months on D wing or whatever. And so, because it would have been what was classed as local prisons where I grew up. So yeah, that was quite quite awkward but once you settled into it and people got to know you and you settled into your routine and we were there over Christmas and that was quite nice because the governors came and did what they they call it like um, tea patrol so normally you have to keep staff on the wings the governor all the governors came on and they sent us off to the staff mess they had bottles of wine on the table so I remember and we only had half an hour for for tea I'm thinking well if they've given us wine so I think me and my friend drank a bottle of leave frau milch each (laughs) it was was hardly quality stuff it was probably blue now leave frau milch and I got back to the wing I was pissed I mean, really bad, but everyone did. In my defence, everyone was pissed and the governors knew we were pissed. So, like, the officer that I was on with wasn't pissed. He said, you just... I sat in the office with a fan on me the whole... I couldn't even get... I couldn't count at the end of the night. I was... But, yeah, it was... Once you were there and you got accepted, it was... It was good. It so was no good. staff or prisoners tried to do anything um, na- really nasty to you for the rest of that? No, that no. Day. I think it, and I think that, like you said, once you sort of go through stuff and don't report it or don't make a fuss or, like I say, just keep your head down and not saying it's right, but that was the culture. Keep your head down, do as you're told and don't cause any, you know, any waves 
then you eventually get the respect from you get the respect if you get stuck in with it's, it's very macho you know if you it, particularly as a woman if you're seen as someone who will get involved and get stuck in you get a bit more respect um, but you have to put on like an invincibility cloak and just say do you know what so from arriving at scrubs to departing brixton then would you say that your demeanour had changed? Oh, I thought I was cock of the north. I was like, <laughs> I felt that I'd done like 20 years service in 12 months. So I thought, I literally thought I'd, this is the best bit. I literally thought I'd seen it all, done it all. Nothing else could happen to me. Had the worst of the worst happen. Send me back to style. I'm ready to be promoted. And then I went back to work at Style, and that's when all the other stuff. <laughs> back to Style, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then within, I think, was it two, was it two thousand or two thousand and two? I was, I was quite badly assaulted on the wing. And, In Style, yeah. All right, so let's let's just go back to your arrival at Style, mm. then. Were same faces in there? Yeah. Were they like, hello, miss, welcome back, that Well, kind some of, thing. of them didn't know us because we'd been away. We'd only been, so just to give the context, so when we left, there were no prisoners on the remand wing. So the remand wing was built. It just had to be sort of all the, you know, dots and crosses and that old signed off and ready to take prisoners. So when we left, it wasn't open. When we came back, we went straight onto the wing and they shut Risley Female Prison down. And then we gradually started to fill the wing up. So I didn't work on the houses again uh, until later on. So I was working on the wing now and we were predominantly new staff. A lot of us have been down in London, down in Brixton. So we had a bit more confidence, a bit more swag about us. Um, and that's when we started taking female prisoners from Risley and we very quickly. And we used to take directly from the courts as well. Just to explain to the American viewers then, so in America, there's jail and prison. Yes. Jail is remand, unsentenced, and yeah. prison is where you go when you're sentenced. Yeah. So you're saying that this whole prison had a remand section uh, and a general population. Yes. Like a, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not uncommon for remand prisoners and general population prisoners to be mixed in the same area as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it tends more on your... Um, risk level really your your security risk so if you're like a woman who's you know just done a bit of fraud and has never been in prison before and is in her 60s and is really low risk and she's on remand waiting to go back and she might get 12 months maximum they'd put her on the houses but generally the wing was where all the remand prisoners were all the problematic prisoners were that they couldn't manage on the houses and anyone basically that was an arsehole. <laughs> I imagine that remand then is way more harder to manage because in prison where everyone's sentenced, they're settled. Yeah, they get the head round it. Everyone. Yeah. Remand, people are constantly coming in and out. It's transitory. Yeah. They've got the drug problems, the this, the that. The, the uncertainty of everything. You've got the people that, are, well, I'm only going to be in here for seven days. So it doesn't, uncertainty, you know. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's quite a, a, well, very chaotic population in the female estate particularly then chuck in the mental health, which I'd say like 90% of them have some sort of mental health or personality disorder, and then chuck in, uh, you know, drug use, which is which is rampant, and the trauma and everything else. Um, there's very, very few people in there that I would, and I don't use the word normal in a horrible way, I just mean people that have had 
you know, nothing happened to them, are quite, you know, high-functioning individuals, they're very, very rare. So what crises did you have to manage in the at, <laughs> back at style? Oh, God. Do you know what? There is literally too many to mention. We went through a what period. Was the, what was the first one? Do you know what? It's probably dealing with, it was the start of my dealings with the woman that assaulted me quite badly. Yes. Are you able to see what her background was? Yes. So she was 18 years old and she was, which is really, really uh, uncommon, uh, an armed robber. So it's not many women that are armed robbers. There's not many 18-year-olds armed robbers no female 18 year old armed robbers and she'd been involved in that and getaway driving and stuff like that so she's part of a gang yeah but she um she had i look back now she was she wasn't diagnosed at the time but i i can safely look back now and say she she had antisocial personality disorder she didn't self-harm or if she threatened it it was just a threat it wasn't that it you know she was she was antisocial she was aggressive she was rude she was dangerous she was manipulative and she's 18 years old um and we had problems with her from the start from from the very beginning problems like what um getting drugs in using drugs um how was she getting drugs in um through other people she bullied the drugs off other people um, or if she was going to court, she'd somehow get them. They always style was very easy as well to throw drugs over the fence. Mm. Incredibly easy because of its sort of geographical layout in terms of you know it's not behind walls, behind walls, behind walls. You know the general public can walk in and walk round the side and throw something over. This is before drones as well. Yeah, and and you know yeah, uh, so drugs are really accessible. So. You know, she started, she was incredibly problematic. I remember one day, I think she'd taken crack. We knew she'd got a, a massive um, consignment of crack cocaine on her. We'd, we don't know how, we don't know where it was hid. We'd taken a cell apart. We, you know, we'd done everything we could. Um, and she took crack this one night and she was uh, refusing to go behind a door and just creating problems. So we got the rest of the wing locked away. And um, basically, the wing, it's difficult to describe the size of them, but they were just like a box, oblong box shape. And um, so staff went in to, to get her off the wing. So it's not going into a cell. You're going into an open environment to try and sort of nail her down. And she was on crack this night. And again, male staff we're talking men that have been in the army that were pt instructors in the army and she is literally throwing them around so one of your weakest positions so when you're on your front if you if you're being restrained and you're on your front you've got the power of your legs the power of your back the power of your chest your arms when you're on your back you're quite vulnerable particularly as a woman because we haven't got the like the 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 chest muscles to you know they had restrained her on her back on a table and she was still, she was like a wild animal. She was still fighting and just so aggressive. And, you know, just, I, I remember our manager was just like, fucking hell. That was, I mean, she was quite tall. She was quite sturdy. Um, but yeah, that was so, so she was, we knew she was going to be a handful, um, 
so that was the first incident with her. And it's kind of like I knew of her, but I didn't, I never worked directly with her. So, but she was, she was always causing problems. So a um, couple of months later, we had everyone coming in off the exercise yard and she went to attack another prisoner. I was with a, a, a colleague. My colleague got there first to intervene and she turned around and she smacked my colleague full on in the face, knocked her flying. We all got on her and managed to restrain her, get her back. But again, because she was 18, they didn't want to put her down the segregation unit. She's a, she's a kid, she's a kid. But eventually that went to court and I was a witness. I didn't have to attend court, but I remember putting in, I gave my statement to the police, got a supporting statement and she got another three months added onto a sentence or she got a three-month sentence, which was great. But I remember her coming back from court on the day that she was sentenced, and she said, I'm going to get you. I'm going to have you. And I thought, yeah, you probably are, to be fair. So I was constantly like, when's, literally like, when's it coming? So then the management, in their infinite wisdom, decided that, so there were two halves of the wing. She'd been living on one half. She'd attacked a woman on that side. She'd been to court, done all the rest of it, got sentenced, came back onto my side on my landing. So you're like one officer that deals with a group of, and we clashed, we hated each other. We really clashed, but I wasn't, I was scared of her, but I didn't let her know that I was scared of her. So I wouldn't take any of her shit basically. Um, by this point, we had a quite tightly locked down on a behavioral plan because she was personally, and, and it's, it's, it's quite common with people with, you know, personality disorders, need consistency, need boundaries, need discipline, need to know where they stand. There's no manoeuvrability within those boundaries because they see a little chink of where they can manipulate and they're in. So she was quite tightly. So basically, if you were the officer on duty with her, you had the power to sort of decide based on what you'd have observed in the day, whether she could come out, whether she'd lose some privileges. You know, there was a scale of privileges that she could have or she could lose. And she'd done something wrong that day. And I said to her, I'm going to write you up for this. You know, you, you've had your chance. You broke the rules. I'm going to write you up for this. So she knew, unbeknownst to me, it triggered off another administrative process where she was going to lose everything. So she was, I'd given her like, she'd had a final warning. I'd given her another warning. So she was going to lose everything. I remember this um, dickhead manager. If you're watching this, I don't care because you know what you did. <laughs> he um, he wrote up all the paperwork. All the prisoners are out on association and he comes up like that with his piece of paper and he slaps it down in front of her. It's basically saying she's going to lose everything. He went, you've got Mr. Gleesh to thank for that. It's like, okay. I mean, I told her that I was giving her a warning. I didn't know that it was going to trigger off all this. So basically, and I was just like, you know, I was gobsmacked. I was like, so I kind of had a sense that it's going to go off. But anyway, <laughs> everything was fine. Got out for tea, put behind a door. So at the end of the night, so once everyone else was away, at the end of the night, they were allowed out for like five, ten minutes just to grab a brew, get some hot water, post some mail or whatever. So all the, most of a colleague of mine, Brian, love you, Brian, was on the um, second landing upstairs, far end, locking the last prisoners on. I'm downstairs with this girl and I've got two 
female prisoners in the laundry. So we used to let the laundry workers stay out and they'd give everything a final like wipe down. They'd finish the laundry. And I had, she started bullying the laundry. When am I going to get my fucking laundry? Why have you not done it yet? So I thought, I can either just ignore this because I'm already, and I just knew, and I knew then I thought, you've got to take the decision. You either back down and lose all face or you stand up to it and get your fucking head kicked in. So I thought, and I remember, so it was really weird, I had a kettle and an iron in my hand. And I was like, I'll say no, because I don't have to say it. I was like, Sarah, Sarah. And she spun around and she went, what? I said, pack that in. And I knew. So I turned back. I put my kettle and my iron down. I turned back and she came in with a big, what do they call them, haymaker. <laughs> Maybe little, but I I knew it was coming, but I just didn't think it would be that bad. Um, So in so by this point, she's managed to how quickly she's managed to get me in a headlock. So she's behind me. Oh no, sorry, I'm bent over facing her, and she's got me in a headlock, and I'm trying to punch her in the side or whatever. But I'm just I've got nothing. She's literally ragging me around by my head, choking me putting blows down on my head, putting them into my face. And um, I had an out-of-body experience. I've had them twice, once in a car crash and once in this. And I was, it was like, I can only describe a near-death experience. So I'm up in the corner looking down. I'm like, shit, a member of staff's getting hurt here. member of staff's getting hurt here. And then it was like, back in my body. I'm like, it's me. Oh it's God. me. Oh it was God. so bizarre. Wow. So there is something about trauma when you're in a traumatic time. And I don't know whether it's to do with adrenaline, but something in your brain slows everything down in order to allow you to react. So when I've been in a car crash, for example, I've managed to sort of um, drive. I went into a spin and managed to drive off the side of the road, but only because I, everything went slow. So it was one of the prisoners from the laundry that jumped in. And had she not jumped on her back, because I couldn't scream, the member of staff was up there. So there was no noise. There was just like me going, ooh, 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 you know, and I thought, I'm not a pussy. I'm not going to scream. Um, so this, and she was old. She, I say she was old, but in prison, they always say, add 10 years on to whatever age you are. She, so she was probably 50s. Skinny thing, you know. Jumped on the back. Jumped on the back. Uh, saved my bacon. Allowed, alerted the other member of staff, Brian. Love you, Brian. Alerted the other member of staff, and he flew. He was like, you know, when you see one of those attack dogs hit someone that's wearing a bite suit. He flew at it, and just like all that adrenaline and rage. So we managed to. We managed to. So even after I've been assaulted. <laughs> We've got her in the back. I'm still having to restrain her. So I'm like, and I'm hurt and I'm aching. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I, I, I don't know what's, I was in such a state of shock. And then a manager came running behind a gate and Brian's saying, get Holly away, get Holly away. She's injured. She's really injured. And he stood behind this gate shaking like a shitting dog and didn't come out and help me. 
And that's when I decided to go for promotion because I thought if a prick like that can earn six grand more than me a year, I can do a better job than that. That that was what turned it. Um, yeah, so she, um, I went home, went to the police. Or oh, sorry, I didn't go home, went to hospital, went to the police. Um, she got sent down the segregation unit. Um, within a couple of days, she'd assaulted a member of staff down there who wore braces. So punched her full on in square on in the mouth where she wore braces, ripping all like the inside of her lips. And I think at that point they transferred her out. But she it's only after she'd been through numerous members of staff. But I know how they treated women on the segregation unit. It's all very nicey nicey and they're not there for punishment, they're there to be looked after. And so it really fucked me off that I'm in hospital and she's being because they're te- you know terrified that she might hurt herself, whatever she's been pandered to. So it was difficult. Did you have to go court? No, again, they did it. She pleaded guilty and it all went, uh, I didn't, I'd given my statement and everything. And she thinks she got, because um, the prison were trying to stop me from going to the police because it looks bad on their statistics. Mm. So they were saying, oh, let's deal with it internally. We can give her extra days. And, and I went, no, this needs to be on her record. This needs to be on her conviction, a rap sheet, the Americans call it, don't <laughs> they? You know, this this needs to be noted. Because in the prison, um, there was a time when you could give them extra days. So as a governor, you could adjudicate on them and give them extra days for offences. But then they could apply and get them all back. And I thought, no, you need to do a sentence. Um, but yeah, so, and I was off for six weeks, maybe. I should have been off for longer. Physically, mentally, I definitely should have been off for longer. But I remember my senior officer saying to me I know you're not in a great place but if you don't come back soon it'll just get harder and harder and harder you need to get back on the horse and I remember my first day back after being off and I still my neck was still my neck is still injured to this day she uh, yeah 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 what was the actual injury so it's um I can't remember one of the c the um up here somewhere the vertebrae yeah yeah so in the vertebrae so there was damage down there and what it's done is permanently leave like um so basically i've got like a it's like a ligament thing that doesn't go away from and so if i do anything like repetitively that i mean i did get criminal injuries compensation for it i did you know i did get does does that affect your sleep or anything no, I've got plenty of other ailments that affect my sleep, not just... Uh, what about physical activity? Does it affect that? Uh, yeah, if I'm doing something uh, repetitively, mm. so say, for example, if I'm driving for a long time, if I'm painting, mm. if I, if I, anything that I'm doing, fortunately it's on my left-hand side, but if there's anything, you've, I know you're like that. <laughs> um, I tell you what's helped with it, yoga, obviously. Yes. So, yeah, I'm good yes. at sort of looking after myself physically. But And and it has got a lot better since I've left the job. <laughs> um, but, yeah, anything repetitive. And if it locks up, then mm. I'm gone. But, yeah, she um, – it was my it, – it, the physical stuff didn't bother me. It was more sort of the – I really had the wind knocked out my sails. I really thought – Maybe I've probably been a bit too cocky at work. And a From bit, where you were when you left Brixton, you yeah, felt, right, yeah, I've done it all now. Yeah, I conquer yeah, the world. I'm top of the charts. I can, you know, yeah. yeah. And I sort of had this sort of invincibility about me. And I probably was a bit of an arsehole. Not, you know, I probably was a bit of a 
I'm better than you and I've you know and it's quite common that with young and experienced staff and um yeah it brought me down a peg or two it definitely taught me some humility how did you regroup psychologically then do you know it was tough and I didn't speak to anyone about it and I didn't but I was really scared and I've never really admitted that to anyone I said, I remember saying to my manager, I'm really anxious about coming back. And he, but he was very, he'd been in the Manchester riots, Strange Ways riots in the 90s. And he was very much a get back on the horse. And, and it probably was the right thing to do. But it knocked all the confidence out of me because I thought, how do I rebuild myself? How, how do I build, how do I go into a fight now? Because I felt I'd got away lightly. Um, but how do I, and I think actually it wasn't long after I got chased by a woman. <laughs> she tried to drag me in a cell. Uh, not long after, she tried to drag me in a cell. Another young kid that was just bananas. And um, I just thought, oh, do you know what? I'm not going to fight you. I can't fight you. So actually, I mean, there was no one else there. It's not like I was leaving a member of staff vulnerable. I actually ran away from her. <laughs> So I ran down the stairs. I was like vaulting sofas and like hiding behind like potted plants and stuff like that. And everyone was like, people were just laughing at me. I was like, it's not happening to me again, you know. Um, so, so that's what you were scared of. You were scared of it happening again. Yeah. Or some, someone assaulting you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But do you know what? After a while, I think, you know, you get back into, you have another fight, you get involved again, and then you think, and actually, like I say, it taught me a bit of humility, taught me, it, it taught me a bit more about myself and about um, how to approach things. And, you know, um, so yeah, in the, it, out of a bad experience, sort of, there were, there were some positives, but yeah, it's very psychologically damaging. You feel so, like that guy in Brixton that I was alone with, you, you feel so vulnerable feel so you feel so scared you feel so vulnerable um and that's really that's really difficult so did your duties change when you came back because you were injured and stuff did they put you in a different no <laughs> <laughs> just put me straight back where i was they said to me uh, they said do you want a return to work plan i said yes please so return to work plan is basically like you've been off for quite a while let's ease you back in let's give you some easier duties so like Nowadays, they people can take the piss and they have like four month return to work plans where they work three mornings a week for however long. I I got like I think a week of reduced shifts just to get me back into the swing of it, and then it was like straight back on the horse. Did you say they shipped that female out so you didn't have to interact with no. her again? No. Okay. But it wouldn't have been. It, it wasn't uncommon for female staff. Uh, sorry, female prisoners that had seriously assaulted staff to to come back in, and nothing was because you are so limited in the female state. In the male estate, you've got hundreds of prisons to swap and change, and sort of change the dynamic and and move people around. Female prisons, you haven't got that. Was well, it about 10 in the UK or something like yeah, that? Yeah, something ridiculous. I mean, there's more, uh, yeah, I don't even think there was that when I was, you know, when I left, they've built some more private prisons now. Um, but yeah, and everyone was really low because generally, and, and when I say you dealt with your own shit, I don't mean the people that were shit. You just dealt with your own dramas and because it was happening all over the place. So for a woman to be transferred out was really bad, you know. Um, so you're back in the job, <laughs> you're recuperating from your injuries, 
What was your next major challenge? It was promotion. That that was the the thing that sort of, like I say, that that I can remember that very specific thought of that man standing. Because one thing, even though I was scared when I came back to work, I knew I would never back down. I'll never back down. I'll never ask anyone to do anything that I wasn't prepared to do myself. And it it wasn't money orientated. It's just I thought, how's he doing that job? I, I can do that. What was his position? Senior officer. So he's the next uniform rank up, but they were manager in charge of the whole wing. Um, so I really started focusing on getting promotion then. Um, probably a little bit working on the sympathy angle. <laughs> Not that I got any favours. Uh, I had to, to work my arse off. Um, but yeah, I started to, to work towards promotion. And I, I had quite, me, me, and, me and my friends used to call it the, the annual trip to the school of failure because we uh, every year we all failed something and it was quite a slog to get through. Uh, but I, I got um, a temporary promotion. I um, can't remember what year it was now, probably 2001, 2002, um, maybe 2001. Um, I got a temporary promotion. So that is when you're given the, the promotion whilst you're going through the assessment. So they think you're competent, but you need all the sort of documents to say you're competent. Um, and you can be temporarily promoted for ages while all the assessed, because it's about a 12-month process to get assessed. Um, so I remember failing, my being temporarily promoted. All the colleagues that I'd done it with passed. I had my job removed from me, and it was given to one of my colleagues. And I was just like, what's the point? Mm. I've, just put, I've just put 12 months of my life into trying to qualify I've put 12 months into my life becoming a manager, which has put me at odds with some of my friends who are, you know, and colleagues. And, but I've gone out my way to try and do a really good job, and then this happened. It, it wasn't because of me. It's just the way it was. That's the way it, it happened. Um, but I then went through a phase of, fuck it. I, I, I didn't care about the job. I didn't, you know, I was having <clears throat> a really shitty time outside of work. I was in a, a really bad relationship. Um, was that with the same officer that you? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. He turned out to be uh, abusive, mm. and um, yeah, it was horrible. The, it, it, so it's a really quite a dark time in my life. Um, Did that translate into <clears throat> relationships with the women then? Because you know, like, you sound you gregarious, aren't you? You're out on the wing and talking. Do you to know people. what? I'm the master of acting. And you have to, you go into work, they always say, you know, you go into work, you put your, your game face on and you, you know, you get on with it. Um, sometimes it got a bit too much and you tell, because we're human at the end of the day. I mean, we're not robots and, you know, you can't come into work for, I mean, sometimes we'd be working 60, 70 hours a week. You cannot come into work 60, 70 hours a week, be on top of your game all the time, not let anything affect you from outside and just everything be, and not lose your temper occasionally or, you know. Um, and I kind of did, I kind of just trundled along really, just dealt with, you know, like I said, I was going through really, really hard time at home. Um, the, I was basically confined, I was a prisoner in my own house. I wasn't allowed out, um, wasn't allowed uh, friends or anything like that. So, 
yeah, it was pretty, pretty shit, really. Um, and I just remember that time just being quite bleak and quite blank. And it was another manager, Tony, God bless you, Tony, who said to me, right, you've had long enough now. Time to go for your promotion again. I was like, no, I'm not. I can't. I'm not. I can't face another rejection. I'm not. I'm, I can't do it. I can't do it. And he went, you're going for it. You're going to smash it. You're going to do it. I'll help you. And I was like, I can't. I'm not. I can't. I won't. And I did. And I got it. And then I got it permanently at style. And it kind of gave me like. It lifted you from the world. It lifted me. And it, you know, things were still shitty at home but it was like I had a new lease of life um I lost a few friends from being promoted because it was like colleagues yeah envy not envy it's kind of like oh poach turn get you know poach turn gamekeeper type of thing and then you're asking people to do things that as an officer you would probably have gone I'm not doing that um so yeah I did I'm going to say lose but just the close the the closer sort of relationships but yeah, it gave me a new lease of life. And I sort of then got on the, I enjoy this. I, re- I really enjoyed my job. It was tough. There was a lot more admin to do in a managerial role, but you were still very hands-on. But instead of being involved in the incidents now, I was the one making the decisions about the incidents, <laughs> which was like, wow, it's my name on the, my signature on the paperwork now. So you've gone from being an officer who's involved in stuff to, and absolving yourself, manage, you know, absolving yourself of responsibility to, I'd still potentially been involved in incidents, but I was responsible for the safety of all the staff and the prisoners on my unit when I was working there. Do you remember what those first incidents were? Do you know what they were? They were predominantly self harm incidents. So they would they would be um, ligature attempts. Um, What's a ligature attempt? So when they try to hang themselves. And even if they are, we had what's called strip dresses that you can't pick apart. We used to have paper underwear that we used to give to the girls and we'd put them in a cell with no fixtures or fittings and they'd still manage to to self-strangulate or feed it through a tiny little air vent or something. Because I think Samworth was talking about like crocodile rolls off bunks. You don't even have to have height. <laughs> yeah. You can just roll off your bunk and... Yeah, you can. Um, you, there's lots of different ways. Like, say that one of the things they do is put. Um, now, I, I would say with the women that it was more suicide than attempting to. Sorry, self harm than they didn't want to necessarily take their own lives. It was that massive. A lot of them had borderline personality disorder. It was a massive cry of help. It was a massive release. Um, so one thing they used to do was put. Um, uh, something tight around the neck, tight piece of cloth, and then push a pen up underneath. And then if you turn the pen, it makes like a garrote. So you can just get to the point where you apply enough pressure to pass out. Um, found, you know, sometimes they'd do a mixture of both. They'd cut themselves and hang themselves from the light. And the motive to do that was what? Um, so... At the time, they people used to say, "Oh, it's manipulation, it's reward-seeking behaviour." It's and and some of it is, but a lot of it's self-punishment. A lot of it's self-hatred. A lot of it is, you know, there's no way out. I'm so frustrated. This takes. And so, what if it's attention-seeking? Do you know what? If I'd had the childhood that some of these had had, mm. I'd want a bit of attention. I'd want someone to say they're there. You know, 
because we weren't allowed to say, oh, bloody pack that in, you can't be asked with dealing. Every time, you know, every incident, I think, was treated with respect and with dignity and, you know, trying to see beyond the behaviour. There's the behaviour and there's the person. Um, so, yeah, it was just, the, the, the self-harm was just rampant. Absolutely. Obviously, the fights and stuff like that. But it, it self-harm was rampant. And then, unfortunately, with that comes a lot of administration a lot so quite often I was going into work at six o'clock in the morning just to get a good couple of hours with no distractions to get all my admin done so that I was free to deal with whatever came up through the day so we would have fires as well fires were quite popular how how did they start fires well they all had at the time this is before prisons went no, no smoking they all had access to lighters and stuff like that so Dead easy to start a cell fire. Toilet roll, yeah, bedding. Yeah, anything dead, dead easy. You know, uh, we'd have people barricading. Um, I think I had one hostage situation. Oh, can you take us through that? Yeah. Um, and the thing is with hostage situations is you never really know. So there's the, ho- there's the hostage taker and the victim. Now, we have known it that they've been in collusion, say, right, let's pretend that I'm taking you hostage so that I get, you know, generally it's to achieve some sort of aim. Generally, it's to move to another prison or to, to, to sort of protest about something that's been done to them. So it isn't uncommon for the perpetrator and the victim to be in cahoots. So the staff member's going along with it? Um, not knowingly. So the, the 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 staff members believe it to be a, gen, a genuine situation, but the, obviously the prisoners are like, "Go on, I'll tie you up, but I won't hurt you." You know that kind of thing. So we got, um, and it was when I was a manager, and um, so we had one woman in a cell, two women in a cell. Sorry, the cell was barricaded, and um, she had, I think, a chair, a table leg, or a chair leg. And she was, she at that point in the early part of the incident, she was threatening to assault her with it. Um, there are really, really strict protocols around managing hostage situations. There's a lot of intensive training that goes on as as you go up the, the sort of management ranks, your sort of levels of responsibility and accountability increase. And there is a very, very set procedure in terms of who gets notified, what gets notified, what, the, the, there's a process that you have to follow categorically. And that's for the safety of the hostage and the safety of the staff that are going in to, to deal with it. Um, we had uh, other members of staff that were more specialised in dealing with incidents like that, and quite often they would come on to give you support. And in this case, a he was the same rank as me, but he was a specialist in this area, so he came down to give me some support. So I was on the phone. So at this point, she started beating the girl with the, the table leg. And she was she, she was just a vulnerable little whippet of a thing. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't a fighter. She wasn't a... And this, this you know, this, this other woman was just beating her. Uh, you know, we thought... I thought she'd not live... Um, but you still have a process to follow. And I know it sounds awful, but there are so many risks. If you say you go to enter and you don't get in in time, and because like particularly male prisons, they'll use knives and stuff like that. If you don't get in in time, the life of that 
So that is why, even though there's there might be something going on, like an assault happening, you still have to go through the processes. Um, and it's like legal stuff as well. So in the meantime, I'm on the phone to like all and sundry, say notifying, going through my checklist of all the people that are notifying all the people. And next thing, I'm, I, I down the wing and there's this woman being dragged out of a cell and the, the poor woman that's the hostage that had been the hostage was being like carried out and then the other one's been thinking and this guy this specialist had come down and he just said oh there was a threat to life so I just took the decision to go in and I'm like so we've just thrown because literally she was battering her but was she unconscious no she wasn't unconscious but it's like and that's the thing I know it sounds awful but it's like he I think he's used it as an excuse to go in and to flex his muscles because I didn't see it as a threat to life. Yes, she was being hurt, but she wasn't being hurt to the point where she was going to be killed. That was my opinion, hence me putting everything else in place. So you're supposed to have hostage negotiators. There was no negotiating there. It was literally door kicks. It was like literally not even staffing in kitted up with the unit. It was literally you, 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 door open, boot through the barricade, drag them out, done, dusted. And that's the opinion with women is that the weak, that, you know, that they're not, you would never do that in a male prison. Never, ever. You'd, you'd, you'd lose your job straight away. But yeah, so it was, uh, there's me trying to be all officious <laughs> and by the rule book and every next thing, doors are being kicked in and people are being dragged out. And Was the hostage glad it had ended like that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she was She was actually really traumatised, really traumatised. I mean, she was she was vulnerable anyway, um, but she, she really thought that end of days had come. Um, I felt sorry for her, really sorry for her. Um, and knowing that, you know, that there's no one else saving you there. It's, you know, it's, I think when we receive hostage training as staff, it's like, we know. So if I was taken hostage, I know that there's a million people out there putting all the processes in place to keep me safe, to get me out as soon as possible, but to get me out in a safe manner. If you're a prisoner, you don't know that. You're just sat there thinking, I could be here for hours. I could be here for days. I, you know, I could be killed. They don't know how it works. So, yeah, she was really traumatised. I felt, I felt really sorry for her. But I've, I've dealt with quite a few hostage victims. And, um, yeah, that it, it re, even the men, it's really... not saying that men are sort of stronger, but I think they're more sort of stoic about it and more sort of, right, get on with it. But, yeah, some of the men have been... It, it's destroyed them to the point where they've needed hospitalisation and stuff. Did she come back to work, that woman? No, it was both prisoners. Oh, it was both yeah, prisoners? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. I yeah. misunderstood. <laughs> sorry. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. yeah so, uh, staff hostage taking is quite rare, thankfully. Uh, it does happen. Um, it's been some high-profile cases with um, uh, some terrorist prisoners and staff, which are really, really terrifying. Um, at one point, they were talking about getting the SAS <laughs> involved, Um but yeah, so it's prisoner on prison. So I've never, I've never, I personally have never known a member of staff. To, I've, it's happened in other prisons, but not, never whilst I've, I mean, we've had staff they've, where they've tried to drag us in cells and stuff like that. And had they been able to, I've no doubt that there, there would be a hostage situation 
there and then, but... Because in Arizona, it was always... They always took staff hostage. That's why I assumed. Well, they're, yeah, they're yeah. they're sort of high, they're, they're sort of high stakes targets, aren't they? Mm. To take a member of staff hostage, um, I think. I don't. There's not many prisoners that I think would have been daft enough to take any of us. We used to have pregnant officers working on the wing, right? Like up until a week before the due date and things. So I think. There they weren't any stupid enough that would probably take us on because they all knew we would, we could fight and we would stick up for ourselves. But I do know um, years ago in Garth, I think in 2000, Garth Christmas, a, a female member of staff was taken hostage in a broom cupboard. She kept there for, I think, three days, which is uh, pretty pretty grim. Did he barricade or something? She or yeah. Was yeah. it a he or a she? He. He, he. Uh, he took a, a female hostage he female member of staff hostage that and i remember my boyfriend at the time attended that incident over over christmas um i was it was terrifying what was the issue do you know what? i can't even remember but like i say it, it generally because it's seen as like the most severe thing you can do i think it's genuinely used for like the ultimate right what's my ultimate goal generally to move to another prison if their behavior has bit got to the point where it's so bad this you know they're desperate to get out and get a fresh start but unfortunately as a hostage taker once you're marked as a hostage taker your, your risk is always considered up there yeah the longest hostage crisis in u.s prison history happened in arizona around the time i was there as well and two lifers um they were trying to escape, but they ended up seizing the gun tower. <gasps> and they had, I think, a couple of female staff members they took hostage. Uh, it lasted for, I think it was 20, people can Google this if you want to Google this. It lasted for weeks, like 20 plus days, I think. Uh, oh, my God. It was like the prison lockdown while that was oh, going on. I mean, I was, I was in um, a jail, and the jail I was in, which was miles away from the prison, was... The whole prison system across the whole of Arizona was Shut locked down. down. All the jails and all the prisons. So was that so they could send staff to deal with? They had, I think they had, um, I think the army or something went in in the end or something like that. I can't remember. No, what happened? They did have uh, the National Guard, I think, or something. Because all the prisoners that were been in that prison were zip-tied and put on a field where they had to just lay for days. And I think, like, the National Guard or something were watching them while all this negotiation was going on with these guys because these guys wanted to be transferred out of Arizona mm. where they were, like you said, different mm. transfers to different prisons, but out of state where they, you know, they were from different states where they could get visits from families. Yeah. So I, I think it was agreed that they would move them out of state. You see, I believe that in America, my understanding is that's why nego they up. negotiation involves giving them an element of what they want, whereas yeah. the British style of prison negotiation is give them nothing, promise them nothing, give them nothing. Um, whereas in America, and, and that's why... The American style is go in and kill them though first, if they can. <laughs> so if they can, but they because they, they had the gun tower, there was oh no way around God. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not like you can scale that, <laughs> like, surreptitiously, is it? Like, covertly. Well, then there was a copycat one where they demanded to be released from out of state, and they promised them they would, and then just sent them to Supermax. Well, that, that's the problem. If you promise it to... And people say, oh, well, this, this is a genuine means to an end, and I get what I want from this. It's just going to encourage, whereas that's why the prison system very much says no negotiation, no promises, apart from when the guy trashed the strange way's roof and the, after like 
12 days or whatever, they were desperate to get him off, so they got him a Domino's pizza or something. <laughs> we did have Alan Lord on the podcast. Did you? You're familiar with Alan Lord? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Were you um, part of the senior staff in Strange Ways when that happened? No, that was before your time. Yeah, way before. before my, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. All right, so. How old do you think I am, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of hostage training situations for training, are you taught to negotiate with perpetrators? You can. Um, so the the job of hostage negotiator is like advertised for prison officers and it's generally anyone that's in uniform because they don't like to have managers uh, as negotiators because if you're a manager negotiating, they would believe that you then have the power to give them what they want. So we have like a chain of command. So you have the hostage negotiators who go through very rigorous, rigorous training uh, and they do like an on-call rotor. So if you work in a prison, there is always, always a member of staff. Uh, negotiators work in twos, if not threes, so they can rotate because potentially if you're there for a long time, you know, you need to rotate. But also there's an element, of, there needs to be a feedback element to um, the control room. So as a governor, I was also trained extensively in how to manage incidents and you had to go through an assessment stuff so you have a chain of information that comes up so I would say I was in charge of the incident they call it silver command and I would have like a psychologist there with me I'd have like a, a sort of riot team specialist in there with me I might have the police on the line I might have the fire service so you have sort of you have this bubble this control bubble but at the end of it, there's a prison officer talking to a, a violent perpetrator through the door. It's uh, quite, yeah, quite intimidating. Was the hurricane squad in effect back then? Is it the hurricane? Tornado. Tornado. <laughs> Tornado. Close. Tornado. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was. So um, tornado teams are, are more used for um, riots. Um, y- you would. Within each prison, you have a you, you have a specialised number of staff that just do the day to day what we call control and restraint and can teach staff within the prison. But then you have sort of like a super enhanced tor- tornado team, and they go away and again do rigorous training and assessment. So they get taught how to de- uh, work in units with the shields, how to deal with weapons fires you know bricks being thrown at them dogs and this that and the other so it's yeah it was never for me that but uh yeah they do go through intense training and then they are on call to deal with any other instance so you can deploy to another prison if they say right because again if there's a riot going on you need to change staff it's you know it's quite you can go through quite a lot of staff so yeah it's uh, what so, what did you call it <laughs> Hur- hurricane. hurricane so what was your next major challenge then <clears throat> getting out of the relationship that i was in out of work no it was again i was still very focused on promotion um and it, it, without sounding um too up my own ass it's kind of like once you've dealt with one incident at the start. You know, you say I talk about that they sound quite intense, but you were dealing with them so regularly, it's kind of like, oh, another self-harm, oh, another fire. I kind of didn't feel that I was learning a lot. I'd worked in every unit 
on the prison. So I'd worked in reception, segregation, young offenders, um, the first night centre. I felt like I had I'd worked visits. I felt like I had sort of done all I could do within style. So I started going for promotion again to principal officer. Um, and I had some horrendous interviews because it's not based on any assessment. It's based on your competence and demonstrating your competence in a written application and then on an interview. And I had some absolute doozies of interviews. So, yeah, I would say from about 2002 to 2005, I was very heavily working towards the next promotion. Um, and yeah, it sounds awful that I thought that I'd done everything there is to do, but I wanted to, I'm, I haven't got ADHD, but I lose interest very quickly. And I'm like, I love learning new things, but once I've learned it, it's kind of like, right, I've done that. What's next? You know, I need to constantly be challenged. And I, 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 I like to go to different prisons and I like to experience different things. So, you know, I was, I was quite keen also, I felt quite burnt out. I mean, I say that it was just day-to-day business, but it did become quite draining. Um, and in my foolish little head, I thought, well, male prison will be easier. Because I thought, knowing what I knew and the experiences that I'd had at Brixton and Wormer Scrubs, I thought, right, men are so much easier to deal with than women. <laughs> I was like, I've had enough of women now. And it was kind of like, I was ready. I was ready to move on. I was, yeah, I'd had, I'd done seven years there, um, experienced a lot, been through a lot. Um, and I was, yeah, I was burnt out basically. And wanting, wanting promotion. And I thought if I don't go now and I don't go on promotion, then I'm never going to get, it felt like I'm never going to get out. So which prison did you target? Oh, my favourite prison. I love this place, Liverpool Prison. No, no, no. Walton. Walton, yes. There's so many people on the podcast have been in Walton. I know, I know quite a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, it's not for everyone. It's a big, just to give sort of like listeners, viewers a picture. It's a, a, a very local, it's like pretty much in the centre of Liverpool very local prison, i.e. Um, 99% of the population live within a five-mile radius of the of the jail. It's an old Victorian jail. It was very, very dilapidated um, when I went there. Well, probably the whole time I was there. I was there twice. Um, very, very dilapidated, quite old-fashioned in its, in its thinking. Um, it was, once again... Um, this was 2005, um, some female staff, so, you know, a few, few more female staff, no female managers at all. So from, from, I think there was one senior officer who was female, but in terms of principal officer and then up to governor, no female staff at all. And I turned up and I think on my first day they said, oh, we've taken a sweepstake. And I went, what on? I'm thinking, oh God, what now? And they said, how long are you going to last? They said, because the last female PO that came here lasted three months and she actually returned to her own prison on, on a demotion just to get out of Liverpool. So I knew I was in for a tough time. Um, but as I said, I'm quite ballsy. 
Liverpoolian scouse have got a great sense of humour though and I just it to me it felt like coming home and I knew I was going to get challenged I knew I was going to I was going to be up against it because there was some like you know rough old staff that have been there for like 30 odd years and they're like it, just like it was at the beginning when scrubs who's this little young upstart that's coming in here and I remember I think it was my second day and there was an incident on the segregation unit. And so um, you have in prison something called an orderly officer. Um, and you're basically there to do the day-to-day operational running of the prison, staffing, incidents, et cetera, et cetera. So I was one of the orderly officers. And there was an incident down the segregation unit. I had a jacket. So on your promotion was demonstrated on your epaulets. So if you had two, we called them pips. That meant you're a principal officer, one meant senior officer. So I have my jacket on, so my pips were not showing. Pips, I said. So I went down there and it was all kicking off. And this old gruff principal officer turned to me and he went, who are you and why are you here? And I thought, here we go. It's like going back however many years. And I kind of did a bit of a, it was very dramatic. (laughs) And I took my jacket off. <laughs> and I, no, no, that's it. Because he'd say, it, it said, why are you here? Who are you? Why are you here? What, what can you d- tell me about managing incidents? And I threw my jacket off like that. And I went, see them? I'm a principal officer too. And don't tell me about managing incidents. I can, <laughs> I can manage incidents in my sleep. And he kind of went a bit like that. And I said, I came from style. And not like, it's not like... I came from strange ways. Kay, I come from style. And he went, all right. And he was kind of like, yeah, she knows her shit if she's come from style. And it was just like, because we were dealing with one incident. I said, one incident, I can deal with five at a time. And it was just like, so you had to be a bit ballsy there. You had to be a bit, you know, hold your own. And again, I was fortunate, the staff that I worked with, um, a, a lot of the men were very fatherly towards me, taught me. There were some very experienced managers there who taught me so much. Um, I'm still in contact with a lot of them now, taught me <laughs> so, so much. Um, but again, as you go up the management sort of structure, you're a bit more removed again. But I think I, they put me in charge of two wings. I think I had something like 400 prisoners and... Um, God, how many staff now? God, about, I don't know, 50, 70 70 staff, 400 prisoners, 70 staff, and like six managers working underneath me. So quite a big responsibility from, you know, and I had a sex offender wing, which I hated, and my office was on there, so I didn't like it. And I had the uh, drug dependency wing. So they were the ones that were always like scrapping, robbing, you know, um, fresh in from court and you know so two very very different wings um but yeah I I there weren't so many I didn't think there was as many incidents it kind of just I settled into a pattern and you know found my feet uh but I was very gobby again I sort of went I, I, I thought I was like cock of the north again and I went and I was like and I remember my manager pulling me in and saying, you have far too much to say for yourself in meetings. You need to pipe the fuck down. You're not an expert. And it was kind of like, I thought I knew everything. It's like, just sit there, listen, learn, 
And then when you've got something valuable to say, come back to us. So I sat there and didn't speak for about six months. Um, But yeah, I I absolutely loved my amount of time there. But again, I was, sounds like I was a promotion whore, like really just desperate. It, it, It was just... I don't know. I just wanted to keep pushing myself. So very quickly from uh, sort of starting at Liverpool, I stepped onto the next promotion transition. So I started preparing for that. Again, 12, 18 month process, went to the annual school of failure um, and went through all that process again, got temporary promoted, then got demoted and then got promoted again. So yeah, I was more but you, you tend to, as you go up the management line, you tend to be more involved in sort of the strategic stuff. Um, and I was like, mm, yeah, I'm very much more of a people person. I like being hands-on. I like being hands-on with prisoners. I like being hands-on with staff. Um, you know, that that was my bag. I got things done not by writing a strategy or a piece of paper and saying, that's how you do it. I'm there. I like to still be involved and be on the front line kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just generally just very, very fond memories of my time at, at Liverpool. So everyone who went on at Liverpool has got had a purple Aki story. Was he there? Oh he there? my God, that man is my nemesis. Don't tell me, don't tell me. <laughs> that man is my absolute oh my goodness. nemesis. The viewers are endlessly fascinated by Aki stories. So. Oh God, for starters, he's about six foot five, six foot six, built like a brick shit house, And obviously there's me. How was you first introduced to him? Um, he was one of these. So whoever you were... If he was, you're not going to interview him, are you? Well, we have tried to get him on. <laughs> he'll, he'll probably remember me. He'll probably remember me. But he was one like... Open door, Aki, if you want to come on. <laughs> yeah, you know I'm telling the truth here, brother. Um, what would happen is, so say you were walking through his wing and he hadn't got the answer that he wanted from his managers or his staff, he'd collar you, come straight over. Who are you? What are you in charge of? what do you do then? What's your, so he's like, so basically it's like, can you help me? I've got a problem. Are you someone important enough that can, um, that can help me? Looking down at you from his great height. Yeah. And me like, bring it on. Um, we had a battle of brains and wits. It was, I, I used to enjoy the battle with him. So never physically aggressive with me. Always very, very respectful. Always very, very polite. But there was always something going on behind the scenes. Always with him. There was like, he might be out cleaning one day and then the next day he's on the segregation unit swearing blind to you that he doesn't know what he's doing down there. He doesn't know what he's done wrong. And you'd be like, yeah, but you've done this, this, this. No, I haven't. He believes his own story every time. But we would have, I really, we would to and fro like tennis, like battle of wits, <laughs> you know, uh, particularly if, when he was on the segregation unit because you get seen by a governor every day on the segregation unit. And at one point I was also the principal officer of the segregation unit. So I'd go down every day and speak to the prisoners and speak to the staff and every day I'd be like, why am I here? 
you're here because you've done X, Y, and Z. But I haven't done X, Y, and Z, but you have. Or, and he knew his stuff. He knew his prison stuff. He knew his prison law. He knew the rules inside out. So when you dealt with him, you had to be on the ball and you had to know your stuff. And also whatever you said to him, you had to be careful because it'd be misquoted or misused or it'd be like, to another, Miss Dagley said this, this. Miss Dagley didn't say that, you know. He was, um, but I actually, he's, he's got a very strange background. I don't know if I can sort of speak about it, but his offences, you know, um, it's been spoken about. It's in the press. Yeah, because he was the only squeezing person. muscles. Yeah, and because he used to come to my town, but I was always home studying when he hit my mates up and was squeezing the muscles and making them squat him. But, I will deny that. But my best friend, Wildman, who died a, couple, a year or so ago, he uh, used to get in the car with Aki and, and show Aki around. So I, I, I know loads about Aki. Yeah. The weird thing is, when I left uh, for America in 91, Aki was the front page of the Witness Weekly News for squeezing muscles and stuff. I came back from America in 2007. And he was still... Go to the shop... Front page, Witness Weekly News, whatever it is. Yeah. This big guy squeezing muscles. So one of the things we used to argue about was um, he was issued with a sexual prevention order, but he's never technically been convicted of one of those those offences. So there was a lot of... I think he was at one point like the only person in the country that had been slapped with this order, but not you know, a lot of it was intelligence-based and stuff like that. So we used to argue the toss about law, and I think he used to try every way to sort of get out of it because when you are on what we call an SPO, um, your conditions for release are, are just like... So I, I remember re- releasing him off one of his sentences, and you have to go through the conditions of release. So say a general prisoner might have one half a page with five conditions on he had six pages with hundreds of conditions on and we sat down and I said right I've got to go through all this with you and he went no you don't Miss Daglish I, I will just I'll um I'll just sign it but I've been told no you have to be very very specific so we sat there for about an hour of him eye rolling at me and me going I know I know we've just got to get through it and he was you know he he went to court he he defended himself in things I think he applied for judicial review about this this order that that was given to him but you know I remember sort of years ago that you know it used to it used to be sort of like an urban legend and like kids used to be threatened with if you know if if you don't get home on time, if you don't do what you're told, Purple Aki will get you. And and he is a physically intimidating man. I think what makes him more intimidating, not that I was intimidated by him, but what makes him more intimidating is the fact that he has brains as well. He's incredibly articulate. Um, he's um, got the ability to integrate himself and to, he's got an element of charm there as well Uh, but then you hear and it's really difficult to marry up these stories that you hear with the man that you see so there was all the the rumors that a a young lad had died running away from him and stuff like that yeah um but you know and and people used to laugh at him and say oh 
Holly's doing is squeezing a few muscles. And then you're thinking, well, that's all we know about, you know, or all we suspect. I just think he's, um, I just think he's quite dangerous. And well, but- they, they said to him in uh, Jeff Ollerhead, we had on, if people want to watch the Jeff Ollerhead podcast, he was in, in Walton with him. And Jeff said that they said to him, you know, are you gay? And he was like, no, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And they said to him, well, why don't you just get a job as a masseur? Then you can legitimately put this <laughs> yeah, yeah. fetish yeah. into a career yeah, and do something like that. But Aki wasn't having any of it. He likes to prowl around the streets, doesn't he? Yeah. But um, there was a video that was, because lots of people are putting clips of him online. Now they see him out and they, they film him. Yes, yeah. Did you see the fireworks one? No, I've not seen that so one. So I think it was in Liverpool. So Scousers, they aimed fireworks at his head. And the fire went right across the street, <gasps> hit him in the head, and he didn't even blink or flinch. Oh my word! It was like nothing I, I like even it happened. Too. What's the What's the guy out of the Green Mile? Yes, John the, Coffey. John, that's how big he is. Yes, that's how big he is. And he and it and it used to, when when I used to speak to him, it's always like me looking, and he'd like hunch down to speak to me. It was. Um, but yeah, he's he's clever. He's... Well, the other thing Jeff Oller had said was that Aki knew the law inside and out, and yep. he would work on prisoners', prisoners cases, cases yep. and yep. get them appeals and early releases. Yeah. So even though he had this uh, in America, you say you got a sex offender jacket. What mm. you said with that thing, even though he had that on him, they gave him a pass because he was helping all the prisoners mm. to get out through the through his legal knowledge. That was his currency. Yeah, I think what we were concerned from a staff perspective was the vulnerability of other prisoners around him. Around so him. yeah, he was the danger. Yeah, exactly. So it was like, okay, I've helped you with this application or that application. What, what do we think he was getting in return? And we could never actually prove anything. A hundred percent people were terrified of him. And like I say, wouldn't present like that. He'd present like a gentle giant. If you were to walk on, you didn't know him from Adam you know, if you were visiting the prison, you'd see him and you think, yeah, tall and what an intelligent young man. You know, what, what, a, you know, what a good conversationalist. What, you know, um, but yeah, we, um, when I did his, read his conditions to him on his day of release and he was like, the police are going to be there to pick me off. And I was like, I, I genuinely don't know. I said, so let's start number one. You must not go within 10 feet of any male under the age of 16 and ask them to touch his biceps. You must not go within 10 feet of any uh, any uh, male under the age of 18 and ask them to perform a squat. You must, And it was like literally boom. And then there was like a specific area. So we used to give the, we used to give the prisoners maps. So if they had like sort of an area where they couldn't go and you'd highlight that and give them to it. And yeah, he... Um, but we used to enjoy our little tussles because, like I said, I obviously thought I was quite intelligent at the time and he obviously thought he was quite intelligent at the time, so we always spent... But I think he begrudgingly respected me for that as well because I never... I treated him fairly. I treated him the same as everyone, you know. Um, we had one of his arresting officers on uh, um, several months ago as well. But he said that... Um, and what, what I've learned is that all the towns that he was banned from, such as my hometown, yeah. Witness... Aki used ra- uh, racism to get the bans overturned. So he's not banned yeah. anymore. 
I think the problem is now, though, he's so well known, isn't he? So, and he's so, you know, obvious in terms of his physicality, big guy, you know, John Coffey type character. It's not like mm. you're going to walk down the street and, and miss him. So I, th- I don't think now he would get away with anything because <laughs> he's just so well known. Part, part, part of his legend, my mates confirm this, are like, he. <laughs> They're just there, right, in the in the park or in like near the pond, and all of a sudden he's just there. There's, <laughs> like, there's, yeah. this, there's this one woman actually. She said she was at a bus stop, and like you know, you wouldn't have sensed anything. There was no one there. She just turned around. And he was right there next. To her. Oh my god, <laughs> that's scary. Yeah, do you know what? Thinking on, you'd be walking down a say he was out cleaning. You'd be walking down a wing thinking. Try and avoid and try and avoid and try. And he'd always get you. He'd always <laughs> collar you. It's like he could be a mile away and there's his spidey sense clicked in and then, yeah, then he's there. But, uh, yeah, I never felt threatened from it. I think because his target was men. Big men. And that's the, that's the interesting yeah. thing is big, tough, scary men, gangsters were terrified of him. I had an ex-girlfriend and she was going out. She said she was dating this, this uh, big rugby player. And he wasn't scared of anybody. And then he, Aki would, he knew where he lived. He'd come <laughs> to the door. He'd, he'd hide cowering oh in the God. house, telling her, tell him I'm not here, tell him I'm not here. But isn't it, isn't it crazy? Because if you're a bodybuilder, don't you want to show off it? Isn't that the whole point that you want to show off your body? You're like, yeah, I've been squeezing my muscles. But, but not to him. Not to him, no. <laughs> my God. The next thing he's on your back and you're making you do squats. You wouldn't be able to. He started out squeezing the muscles, but then he made people squat him. That would, I, I can't even begin to think what he weighs. And like I say, it's not through fat. It's not because he's, he's obese. Jesus. <laughs> Aki, Aki, if you're out there, it's time to step up and get, come on and tell your side of the story. So many people are fascinated by by your urban legend. So yeah, that that would be, you know, we'd be honoured if you come on. <laughs> <laughs> not when I'm here. <laughs> N- no offence. <laughs> All right, so um, I was asking then about what you had. To- oh, that's the thing, that's it. So you said you were managing a sex offender wing as well. Yes. I imagine the incidents on the sex offender wing will be a lot different from the incidents on the general population. So what kind of incidents would arise on the sex offender wing and and how would you manage them and how would you interact with them? Yeah. I mean, so the, the sex offender wing would be, would be called VP, VPU, a vulnerable prisoner unit. So you could be designated a vulnerable prisoner because you're a sex offender or you've committed an offense against an old lady. So for example, they didn't like burglaries where old lady, old ladies have been beaten up and stuff, or you could be a vulnerable prisoner because you'd got into a drug debt in the rest of the prison uh and then you got you would request what's called own protection and i think there's again there's something similar in america where they have a you know protected pc yeah Yeah. population and um you'd be moved on there so within there there would be a hierarchy so even within the sex offender unit there's a hierarchy so you've got the vulnerable prisoners that are being bullied and beaten up and and really vulnerable on the other wings, but move on because they think they're better than the sex offenders, so they're at the top of the tree. So the ones that are victims elsewhere suddenly become the bullies in the top of the tree. On the then you have the um, then you have the 
people that beat old ladies up. Then you have the rapists, and then the bottom of the you know the bottom of the rung is the the child offenders. So incidents would be there is, was is there a, even a hierarchy amongst the child offenders? No, not like on level of like what the age of the person or anything like that. No, okay. There, I think it was just accepted. I think it was quite yeah. You'd see them develop friendships with each other, and you'd be like. I dread to think what they talk about. Um, the prevalence of self-harm was higher on the vulnerable prisoner unit because by the nature, it sounds awful, but when you when you commit that kind of offence, the reason you pick on young or vulnerable people yourself is because you're a bit of a, you know, a loser. Um, and they didn't fare well in terms of sticking up for themselves or, you know, they were all like, woe is me, life's so shit, why has this happened to me? A lot of them self-harm, a lot of them would be depressed all the time, a lot, you know, they they all went out to work and engage with the regime and things like that, but incidents would predominantly centre around sort of self-harm and um, there would occasionally be a fight, very occasionally, uh, but it always tended to be the prisoners that were not in for that kind of offence, the ones that had been moved off other wings, trying to assert their, or, you know, their power a little bit, or even trying to get moved off to the unit, onto the segregation unit, because ultimately that's where people wanted to be if they were off the wings, whether it's a bit of kudos or whatever. But if, particularly if you wanted a transfer, you know, get involved in an incident, go down the segregation unit, and then nine times out of ten you'll get transferred out. And did you hear about like offences of sexual nature against elderly people? Um, no, I did, uh, but that's not to say there weren't. Um, I mean, that's quite uncommon. They're called what gerontophiles, aren't they? Oh, like granny rapists. Yeah, yeah, gerontophiles. They've called. Um, I think we had like one guy in. Um, but there was none of like, is it the Stockwell Strangler type guy who went the the guy who went in in the the nineties and raped and mm. and killed a lot of old ladies down south and men as well. Um, but yeah, it's very 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 rare, very rare. Um, there were quite a few in for sex murders, so uh, you know, rape. Partners. Um, no, there there was one guy. I wish I could remember his name now, but I, where I lived at the time, I lived in a place called Lee. It's in Lancashire, it's sort of on the way to Manchester. Oh, yeah, Lee. Yeah, yeah. Next to Newton, Lee alone. Quality place. Yeah. Um, so there was a guy, and I remember reading about it in the newspaper, and he ended up on my wing. So he had, um, he'd not killed her, but he'd almost killed her. I think his intention had be to, been to kill her. And he, um, he raped this woman and basically beat 10 bells of shit out. And I mean, pulverized her face to the point she, she was completely disfigured for life. So she'd been sexually attacked completely. They had to rebuild her whole face. And it was, they said it was like concave her face by the time. So she was lucky. And it, the only reason he got caught and he stopped the attack is that he was being watched by CCTV. And I think, or got, 
um, a security guard saw what was happening and managed to sort of raise, it was away, but managed to raise a barrier on the car park or something to say, we're coming or there's, there's someone around. Anyway, he ended up on my wing and he ended up uh, being one of my prisoners who was at risk, as in classed as vulnerable because of the offence they had committed. And I remember interviewing him. I had to interview him for some reason. Can't remember what for now. But I'm sat in a room with him. And a nicer man you could just couldn't meet. He was, he was only young. He's about 21, 22 he was good looking. I can say that objectively, you know, he was, um, a good looking young lad, looked after himself, went to the gym, kept himself smart, kept himself clean. He was, he was, and when I say charming, I don't mean in a, a sort of smooth manipul, just a very sort of almost childlike charm, um, very softly spoken, very, you know, but he actually had a tattoo of a woman on his arm of a face pulverized in, and he was obsessed. That was his sort of, um, kink, not kinks, it's not even a kink, is it? But that was his obsession. So he'd smashed her face in and then got the no, tattoo? No, he had the tattoo first. So he was obsessed with that was his thing that he wanted to do. And he was assessed sort of psychologically and they said, and they said he would have, he would have gone on to kill He's one of the, he's, he's like sort of serial killer in the making kind of thing. But I am not joking. When I spent, and I spent about an hour with him, which is quite a long time to sort of interview someone on a one-to-one basis. And I went away, not a hundred percent believing that he did it. Cause I literally thought, how can someone, and it's only when they told me about his tattoo that I thought, and if he's had that before the offense, then that must be his thing. Flag, yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But wonder how he explained that to the woman that he did it to when she saw that tattoo. Oh God, I, d- I don't know. I d- mm. It just, but I c- I can believe that he'd done it. It's like Ted Bundy, isn't it? Yes. Like how charming you are to the judge. And exactly. The judge was laughing along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I wish you'd been in my court as a lawyer and this, that, and the other. Yeah. But yeah, he was so. And like I said, up until hearing about the tattoo. I could have said he's one of those where you really don't know whether he's guilty or, you know, innocent or guilty. But in the end, the, the, there was a stack of evidence against him. And I think he got 15 years, which for actually is, is reasonable for um, for the offence. Um, but, yeah, just remember her having to have complete sort of reconstructive surgery. Um but yeah, very, very disturbing. And when when you hear about that, it makes you question your own judgment because you think, I thought I was quite shrewd and quite a good reader of people. I mean, I, I can talk about Mark Bridger, the, the child murderer later on when I worked with him at Manchester, but I think I'm quite sort of, not, I don't fall for bullshit easily. But yeah, even I was just like, wow. And I, I think I was a bit scared, not scared, but I thought I, I used to drink in Lee at the time. And I was quite young. I think I was like 27 at the time myself. I think he was like 22, 23. And I thought I could quite easily bump into you in a night out and end up having a drink with you or something like that. That was the really scary thing. That sort of, like you say, that Ted Bundy element of can worm his way into your life somehow on a really nice level, but then have this monster behind. So I think that really affected me that, um, thinking he could have been me. 
what other extreme crimes were there in the Liverpool area that you interacted with the perpetrators? Do you know what? A lot of them tended to be drugs-related, gang well, Most crime is these days. Particularly Liverpool at the time. It was sort of like, you know, it's when all the, the sort of gun gun crime was sort of at its peak and stuff like that. And I would say the majority of it was gang drugs firearms related <clears throat> we did have a lifer unit but i didn't go on there i didn't tend to to interact with them and also you've got liverpool's category b prison and it's a local prison so the more extreme offenses um even sort of the more extreme murder type offenses would go to manchester so there wasn't it was like well i say extreme to me they weren't extreme but you probably think you know uh, a catalog of sexual offences against boys or you know these um, armed robberies and massive importation of like cocaine and heroin and i'm like well that's not extreme <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i i always say a lot of them with the revolving door set you know the the petty crime drugs in out in out um even the the sort of gangs and the the stuff like that we never got the kingpins or if you did get the kingpins there go to manchester the category a prison and you'd get the sort of foot soldiers type of thing so there was never it, there was never to me anyone that really stood out in terms of their dangerousness it was just your general oh this, this gang slashing this gang up again and dealing with that that was very common. Slashes to the face, slashes to the neck. Is that like in London then they've got postcode wars that have gone over into the prison systems, but they've got like drug gang rivalries in yeah. in Walton? Yeah, yeah. It, and, it was, and it was quite regular. It was like managing a group of children. So you'd have like about six or seven functioning gangs in there and one would have a problem with one. And then they come to you and say, oh, such and such has threatened me. So I need protection. I need this. And you would spend your days running around trying to mix gangs up and separate people. And then I used to be like to them, because you choose to live the lifestyle, you live outside. I'm now sorting your shit out whilst we're inside, you know. Uh, but the threat was real. The threat was definitely real to them. You know, some of the, the face slashings that I saw were like, whoa. Because there was a lot of shootings in Liverpool as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there was, there was the guy that was shot outside, not Forest Bank, the other... Um, it's a private prison in Liverpool. Can't remember its name now. Um, there'd been a shooting outside there. The guy was shot right outside of the prison. Yeah. What was that about? Gang warfare again. Gang gang retaliation. But whatever happened outside the prison always replayed inside the prison. So if you think of particularly a local prison like Liverpool, if you think of it as like a microcosm of the wider community, but it was more magnified. So um, there was. Um, a firearm discharged outside the prison when I worked there. Um, it was quite, and it was like, crikey, we're coming out dodging bullets now. But it's, um, and we were always fearful that a gun would make it into the prison. That was, that was always our biggest concern. But fortunately they, they kept it to fighting with knives in the prison. But yeah, definitely. It, it, there was always tip for tap, always. You know, and it was, in, and like I say, whatever happened outside, the repercussions or the retaliations would happen inside. Um, How did they source the shanks? Um, oh, crikey, anything you can think of, 
absolutely anything you can think of. They're so inventive. I mean, the common one is the um, the toothbrush with two razor blades melted into it. So when you slash the face, because the two cuts are so close together, you can't stitch them that way because it'll leave a gap. So it'll create like a permanent so scar. So create, yeah. So you can't stitch them. Um, so yeah, they, they have lots of... Uh, not woodworking shops, like workshops where there's always access to something because unless your eyes are absolutely everywhere all the time. Where do they hide them? Are there constant searches? Quite. So there's two types of searches. So there was always like a rotational search. So every cell should be searched once every six months, just a general sort of. um, And then there would be intelligence-led searching. Um, which would be a piece of information has come into us to say such and such has got a weapon. Here is, here's where you'll find it. Go and find it. A lot of the times they'd hide them in the showers and sort of communal areas so that it couldn't be pinned down to one person, um, which is, which is understandable. Um, but every day the officers were supposed to enter the cells and have a quick scan, but that's not going to, they're so inventive, at, you know, hiding places. Um, but communal areas were always really popular. Like because, library books. Uh, yeah. Like the, you know, the backs of TVs and things like that. And in the soles of the shoes. And are you guys clear tech in this country? Um, Everything is clear in America, so your TV's all clear plastic, your Walkman's all clear plastic, so the guards could come in, they could see inside the TV. Everything. No, I've not. I've, I've seen it, but yeah. it's not something that, yeah, we're a bit behind in terms of resourcing the uh, the prison <laughs> service in the UK, but yeah, that's a, that's a fabulous, that would be a fabulous way forward. And the other thing is, you can't have any volume in America, like on... Oh. You, you've got a if you've got a TV, you got a headset to it, which is a clear tech, or a Walkman clear with your headset. You can't have volume on. That sounds like heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, when Liverpool and Everton used to play, the first time I ever heard it, I was like, I think I was working on the centre. I was in charge of the prison again, orderly officer, and this rumble started and ev the doors the, the doors were, so if you think of like a thousand prisoners all kicking the doors in at the same time when one scored or one hasn't and it was like it was crazy and then you've got the disruptive prisoners who like to sleep all day and then keep you up all night and they bang and bang and bang and bang and scream and shout. And See, if, if they did that in America they would get smashed for keeping everybody awake sometimes they do yeah mm. But down the segregation unit... All the, the doors are closed. All the doors are closed and they don't mix anyway. Cell so warriors. Yeah, exactly. So they, they can just sort of create havoc. I used to hate night shifts. Or it's just generally like people, like say, playing really loud music. And there's not a lot you can do. I mean, I would hate it. <laughs> what was the worst violence that happened at Walton? Oh, God, again, there was, there was quite a few. I <laughs> There was one day, so... All the, nearly all the cells at, at Walton are, are double cells, but there are like a few cells which are almost like dorm cells. So you might have four or five in a cell. Um, and yeah, so there was this one day and I was, I was in university when I was, because I was a governor there at one point as well, but I was audit officer in charge of the prison and I had a governor working above me and these five lads in this cell 
they'd taken something. We don't know what they'd taken, but there's five of them. So bearing in mind when you're dealing with one prisoner who's kicking off or barricading, you need three staff and with a backup member of staff or two. So let's say four staff. So you're on an, an evening shift where you've not got a lot of staff anyway, but you need at least 20 staff now to deal with these five prisoners. And the layout of the room, so it was like a little bit of a, so a normal cell is designed just like a box. So you can see straight through it. There's no hiding corners. You can go in. It's quite easy to pin someone down. But in this this cell, because it was bigger, it was more on an L shape. So there was parts that you could see, parts that you couldn't see. You didn't have a clear line of sight. So basically, you were going in blind. Anyway, they were they were off the reds. I think they'd been drinking hooch, actually, which is like prison brewed alcohol. Um and it was like, shit, we need like 20 odd staff, if not, if not more. Um, so we locked the rest of the prison away. <laughs> I'll never forget this. It was awful. So they'd got a load of broom handles in there. So it was when we used to have like the wooden broom handles and they had, uh, there was like one door with one perspex glass or glass spyglass. And I remember, I think it was you, Harvey, if you're listening to this, um, very uh, very good friend of mine i remember the cell hatch opening and this officer going towards to look like that and i just remember seeing this sharpened broom had it didn't hit him don't worry i know yeah (laughs) the reflexes on this guy this sharpened broom handle just went smash through the glass. And this, and it was literally, I saw it in slow motion. It wasn't, but his reaction just get, and it was like, there. <laughs> I was like, shit, they're, they're out to play. They're out, these, these guys are out to play. Now, if you think yourself, when, you, when you've pissed, when you're drunk, it's a nightmare, isn't it? It's like just dealing with drunk people when you're sober. But think of five that have smashed the cell up. There's water everywhere. There's broken furniture. They've got weapons. You haven't got a clear line of sight. You've got staff that say, literally staff going, this is past my finish time. I want to go home. And you're like, are you fucking serious? Are you actually serious? We've got shit to deal with here. So fortunately, the governor that I was on was quite hard line. He was like, we're going to get in there. We're going to smash it. And we're going to drag them out. And that. And so when you get the go-ahead, everyone's like, yeah, ramp. <laughs> everyone's like ramped up. Wow. So, so we have anti-barricade doors. So obviously what would happen is, is you have a big steel-heavy door and then the prisoners would pile up all stuff behind. So that's another issue. So that delays staff. So one of the things that is on our side is rapid entry. But if you've got a barricade to climb over... Um, so we've got anti-barricade doors, which means we can unscrew a couple of things and open them up that way. But you've still got to get, just to remind viewers of this, 20 staff, or at the minimum 15, over the barricade into unknown space. Into un, you just don't, into utter chaos, basically. Um, so we did. We did the barricade. We sent this, and like we always picked like the tastiest staff. There was always like, I mean, Liverpool's not short of a few tasty, you know, people anyway. But we always picked like <laughs> the hardest guys. It was like get in there, and no offense, I'm always a bit of a liberal, softy, lefty me. But it's like get in there, <laughs> smash the shit out of it, get it done. 
So we went in, but it was going on and on. And I'm stood outside because as a manager, I'm in charge of the incident. I'm not supposed to go in because if anything happens to me, who's going to then manage it? So I thought, fucking, I need to go in and see what's going on. And there was like, for some reason, there was like smoke everywhere. And I'm going in and there's just bodies everywhere. There's like staff rolling around. And you're trying to think, because then you're trying to sequence who's got control first, who can move out, who can move there, where are we going to put them, what's going to happen. So we, um, I think I ended up getting involved in something, I, I think I've got a hold of a toe or a finger or something like that. And the instructions that have been given to me by my governor was, you need to make an example of these guys now. So we had a massive, ex, you know, I talked about exercise yard before, surrounded by wings, so hundreds of prisoners would see. And the instruction was that we were to walk across and that if they fucked around, we were to face plant them so that everyone sees that if you do this this is what's going to happen with you. So I had a couple of other sort of managers that worked underneath me that were helping me sort of coordinate stuff. And we were gradually taking them out one by one. It went on for ages. And and, um, I think we've got the last one out. And he was the one still fighting. He was the one fucking screaming. So we got him down the stairs, got him wrong, got him down another set of stairs, got him onto the exercise yard. And... I, think, I can't remember if I had hold of him or it was it was what whatever was happening, but I was there, and he started kicking off again. So I just I just flattened him, flattened him face down outside the wings. Go on, Misty. Go on. <laughs> it was like nice one, Miss, because they were pissed off. All the prisoners were pissed off because these idiots had kicked off. Everyone else had to be locked away. Mm. So they were like banging, cheering. It was like, and it was, I just said, come on, Miss D, you show them. So, yeah, it was, uh, mm. I mean, fortunately, touch wood, it was, it, it was quite rare for staff to get hurt, you know, because um, the, the fighting was between the prisoners mainly. But, yeah, you did, I did like a good old rumble. And then uh, that it was that night, I think I took all the staff. I, I didn't used to drink with the staff or anything like that or, or go to the prison club but after that night everyone was so good I was like right I'm taking you all to the club and I'm buying you a drink and we literally sat there with our pints going what the fucking hell just happened there it was uh good yeah how many years into your career are we right now oh okay <laughs> we're, we're only about I think we're about Six, seven years. About, oh, how many no, years? sorry, about eight or nine years. Out of twenty-one. Oh my goodness! I think this is going to have to be a series because we're going on for four hours right now. <gasps> wow! Um, but what have we got to look forward to next? If you'd be so kind to come back. So we've got Manchester Prison, which was I dealt with high-profile Cate prisoners. So Dale Cregan was on my caseload, as was Mark Bridger. If you remember Mark Bridger, what was just killed April viewers. Jones, the five-year-old girl oh in McConkleth, Wales. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was that was a very basically. I was told if anything happens to these guys, you lose your job. It was high-stakes stuff. So, and how many years into your career did you become a governor? I started. I was temporarily promoted in 2008 and then got a permanent job in 2009. So I was a governor for, oh, my maths is rubbish, 10, 11 years. Okay. So we've got all the governor stories as well. Mm. 
you seriously need to start writing this all down because the story is absolute dynamite. You're one of the best speakers I think we've ever had on, the way you tell them and you, you, you're so animated, your energy and everything. And um, there's not that many governor... And I own a publishing company. I'd be, I'd be honoured to publish your book if you oh, get round to you. it. Oh, thank you. I think it might be a Lord of the Kings type <laughs> situation because it's... Uh, yeah, this is just my... My professional life. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to start going on about my personal life. But wow. Yeah. No. It's yeah. good to good to um, it's good to reminisce. Mm. It's good to look back on the career that I had because I ended up leaving the prison service and I was um, I was retired from the prison service and I miss it. Mm. It's, it's, you know, I miss the camaraderie and also I'm really passionate about you can probably tell I'm passionate about people hearing what it's like what the reality of it's like uh particularly from sort of a staff perspective and maybe from a female perspective as well so yeah good grief absolutely mind-blowing I'm sat here mesmerized it's been so fast <laughs> so I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have please let us know in the comments if you want to see a part two please let us know in the comments what you think about chemical castration <laughs> and perhaps some of the other subjects We've gone over during this, this extremely long, epic podcast, <laughs> and we will, we will read them all. And if you've got any more questions, if you've got questions for Holly as well, we could put them to Holly yep. um, when, when we do a part two. So, yeah, absolutely amazing. Thank, thank you so much, Holly. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Gadfly Press. We are proud to announce the publication of The Girl Gambler, a young woman's story of her escape from gambling addiction. The story of a young girl's entrapment in gambling addiction, the true advert for problem gambling and how it controlled her every movement, every thought and almost took her life. How the guilt and shame that go hand in hand with addiction stopped her from reaching out for help for eight years as she didn't feel it was okay for a young female to be a problem gambler. How she believed it was a male-dominated problem and how eventually she did find the tools that enabled her to become free of her addiction. Available worldwide on Amazon, link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor.